Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, September 15, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Jim Goin, No Shot Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. <laughs> Good morning. Now, let me back. Good morning, No Jim Going, Red, uh, Royal Rev of Radio. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I always think about it, but never do it. I saw Josh pushing the iron yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Hey, jo- a Josh. Josh, can counter. How you feeling this morning? Sore. <laughs> I mean, you're just I working. Mean, you're doing a good job, right? Yeah. yeah no, no pain, pain no, no gain. gain. Isn't that what they say? Exactly. Now, so. what is it you said you had a close what? A close kin counter of the kinth kind. Okay. <laughs> you you saw each other at the gym. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. I was doing my thing. I didn't bother you. No, no. Just a, just a nod. You know, I, <laughs> I, we're there to work. You know, we're there. And, and besides, I'm paid to, and look to listen chicks. to you talk four hours a day. I don't, Ooh. you know. Ooh. He didn't want to hear any more. There, there was nothing. There's nothing revealing I could have said at Josh uh, in the gym. I go to the gym to get my job done. You know what I mean? My job is to work out for an hour and 15, 20 minutes, 20 minutes in the sauna, shower, go do the rest of my stuff. But um, I, I'm not there to. I mean, I watch some of these people and they're with all due respect. I mean, they, they lift a weight and then they talk for about 15 minutes. And then they'll, you know, they'll step on a little one of these, um, one of these block steps or whatever, and they'll, you know, walk around talking about other stuff. Now they, they've got their matchy matchy Lululemon uh, outfit <laughs> on. Uh, rest assured, they look the part, uh, both in both ways. Normally, uh, but <laughs> okay. be careful there. But mm-hmm. um, and and maybe they just got it figured out better than I do. But I'm like head down, focused on this set, then that set, then the other set. And I'm encouraged to see you go. I mean, I really and truly am. So what precipitated this? I mean, I mean, what what in Josh's world made him decide, okay, now's the time that I want to start? Because most people do this, Josh. You ready? Most people commit, go for a brief period of time, and then, you know, just kind of fall by the wayside. Um, what you've done, what a lot of other people have done, at some moment in your life decide, I need to take better care of myself, exercise and fitness needs to be a part of it. I'm joining a gym and I'm going on a regular basis. And you do that for 30 days, 45 days, and then life gets in the way. And there's yeah. an excuse to not go Tuesday. And then Rev needs you to do something on Thursday, you know, and then, um, and then your father wants to go out and eat with you Friday. And then, you know, some girl that you meet says, you go to the gym on Tuesday at six. That's when we do such and such. I mean, it's just the only advice I could ever give anybody and it goes back to the book I read. Um, I read a book really and truly about midlife crisis. <laughs> I read several books about midlife crisis. But the one that I read that had a, a definite effect or impact on me and my exercise life is a guy that said you can't treat it as an extracurricular. There's always a reason to not do the extracurricular. Gamecock football is an extracurricular. Tiger football is an extracurricular. It's an expensive extracurricular if you go the track of, um, you know, wanting decent seats and a decent parking spot and, and those sorts of things. Exercise can't be treated like Gamecock football. I mean, it's got to be treated like part of your job. In fact, the book that I read, I think it may have been halftime, the guy said that, it, to, to my point, he was always figuring out a reason not to go to the gym. He was 47 years old. It was, you know, I mean, he kind of let himself slip a bit. I think he may have been a high school swimmer. I might have even been a college swimmer. So there was a day in his life he was fairly physically fit, and he did what a lot of folks do. He kind of let himself slide. And here's what I like to say. 
175 becomes 180. 180 becomes 187. 187 becomes 194. 194 becomes, oh, 200. Oh, man. man. I mean, now that I'm over 200, well, what, you know, I'm unsalvageable. <laughs> you know, and 200 becomes 206, and 206 becomes 212. And, yeah, but I'm not getting 220. I'll I, I tell you, 220 is just that. That's that. That's that. No, I'm not doing that. I mean, there's no way. No way I can do that. 221. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. I mean, I've read the 230s where you start having all kind of hypertension issues and, and some of these others. It's easy to fall into that into that mindset, but, but most people treat exercise as an extracurricular. I just think you've got to treat it as part of your job. I mean, I didn't complete my day's work. This is weird because I don't get paid. I didn't directly. I think I get indirect pay, and I, I would argue the pay I get for going to the gym an hour and a half every day is probably equal, or it makes me better at everything else. It's made me, it's made me more productive in a lot of other ways by my going to the gym uh, five days a week. But, but I believe that those who treat it as an extracurricular find a reason to discontinue at some point in time, and it's normally 45-ish days. I mean, you're not in your head. You're in that boat, Rev. You told me you're in that boat. You, you know it's, you, you're the age. It's probably absolutely in your best interest to be a regular guy at the gym. And yep. I'm not saying go lift a 1,000 pounds. I'm not saying go break the records. I'm just saying go and be physically active, get right. a routine that is manageable. Enhanced activity. Sure. Right. I mean, no no that, doubt about it. That's the goal. And, um, but, but when you allow yourself, and, and, and we're all busy in our, in our different ways, but when you allow yourself to say, yeah, but I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got to do this other thing, you're, just, you're not going to make it work. It's not going to work. There's always going to be a reason to not go. And what I've done since 2007 uh, 2006, since 06, what's that, 17 years? I don't know of a week that's gone by. And I'm not lecturing anybody. Good God, you want to talk about my problems? We don't have enough time on this airwave. But but the one thing I've done is commit myself to a routine since 2000. Dad died in 04. Mom died in 06. And, and I remember between the time mom and uh, my dad died in 04. So between the time that my dad and my mom died was the time I started c- kind of committing myself to that. And I, I think I, I think after my parents died, I went through this midlife crisis. The, the one thing that people have lost parents understand, and Rev knows this now, um, there's, there's always this unspoken layer of insulation in our lives. Yep. There's always this yep. safe place, safe space. Um, there's always this, you know, um, mom and dad love you unconditionally. I mean, they get disappointed in you. They get frustrated with you. But their love never wavers, and that sensibility is there. I mean, the twenty-four-seven, seven days a week until the day they aren't here any longer. And when they leave their earthly existence, there's that insulation layer that that is. It's a little bit questioned. I mean, you find yourself like, "Wow, where do I go now to be sure somebody's got my back?" I mean, That's people well disappoint. Said. People disappoint people. People let people down. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't think I've ever let Rev down. Uh, I made a commitment to him. I'll be a dependable employee. I mean, I'll be here. I'll do the best I know how. You've done that, Josh. But eventually, we do a thing or two or three or four that that isn't the way it should have been done. We 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 just I mean, that's who we are. Nobody. I mean, you're not going to stop being that. I'm not going to stop being that. There was a place our parents accepted that about us. The world judges you by that. I mean, the the world says, you know, that damn Reverend Ken. I mean, you know, they're okay sometimes. Sometimes they aren't. <laughs> 
the mom and dad, yeah, but they're my, they're my kid, you know, and <laughs> it's my job to put my arm around them. And I mean, I'm not saying they, for, you know, that they let you slide on everything, but, um, but once dad died in 04 of a, of a massive heart attack, middle of the night, one of these gone, you know, um, ate a pack of Tums that day and thought he had indigestion and had, you know, major blockage and told my brother at about three o'clock in the morning, they lived on a farm together, told my brother, Hey, you got to get me to the hospital. Never made it to the hospital. Uh, died of the bathroom floor. Uh, they resuscitated him one time, we think. And then, um, and then, you know, that, that was it. Never been sick, never had any issues. Um, I joke around and say, I was probably 40 before I knew you could do something other than fry a chicken. <laughs> I mean, I, I grill chicken. What is that? I mean, we got to cook it, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> right. What do you do after you grill it? Do you, do you cook it then? Yeah. You know, is there something? <laughs> That's not a cooked chicken. I mean, not get a crust on it, grease on it. Come on. Right. We can do better than that. But anyway, dad died in 04, and, and I, I, I kind of committed myself. And then mom died in 06, and I think that's when I went off the deep end and had this midlife crisis and wanted to read books and understand. I'll tell you the, the reality, and I, and I, I say this because I've spoken to other people who are entering midlife. There's a moment in all of our lives that we look in the, the windshield of our car and we realize that in all likelihood, nobody knows but in all likelihood, there's less road ahead than there is behind. And that's, uh, for me, it was a, a disturbing revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, now, it coincided with me losing my parents. You know, that, that midlife crisis came at about the same time I lost both my parents. A lot of crap, you know, going on there. Um, my, my brother and I have talked about it after the fact. You know, Dad, there in that corner office one day with, with 100 employees, and the next day he ain't. You know, it's not like dad had cancer and, and over a gradual period of time kind of removed himself a little bit more and more and more from our, our business. And we were, to your point yesterday, head down, you know, got this business, got this obligation, got this, he ain't in that office anymore. You know, um, everything made you a little more nervous. So I started reading all these books about am I losing my mind or not. No, dude, you're having a midlife crisis in essence. And that's when I committed myself to be, um, to be as fit as I could be. Now, in all honesty, when those 22-year-old, you know, loggerheads stumbled into the gym and start putting all these weights on the bar, I'm going, I want to do that. And something inside me says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You can't do that. What do you mean you want to do that? You couldn't do that if you wanted to. So you find kind of a, um, you know, a routine that's suited. But it has made my life fundamentally better. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind, my commitment to exercise, my commitment to being at a gym um, has changed my life. I mean, I, I really and truly believe that. And, um, and I'm, you know, as, as much as I've goofed up all these other things, that's the one thing I tell people, you know, my exercise life and my marriage are two things that I'm probably, probably more thankful than you can imagine. I got right. Cause as much other stuff as I've screwed up, if I got that wrong, good Lord. I mean, <laughs> one step ahead of the jailer is what, um, Jimmy Buffett said, I think. And that's, uh, that's kind of the way we, um, we rolled for a long, long, long time, but I'm encouraging you and I've encouraged Reb and, I, and he knows, I mean, I, you know, when you get to a certain day, you know, I mean, you know, okay, man, I, dude, I know I'm better off going to the gym two, three, four days. I get it. I understand it. I've just had, I, for whatever reason, I've not been able to solidify, um, that commitment and, um, in, in the world of healthcare and, you know, we, we talk about longevity of life and so, some of the biggest problems in America today. You know, are are the entitlement systems, 
and we're, we're, we're not wanting to reform the entitlement systems. We're living longer. You know, it is costing more money to live longer. Um, I mean, there's a fair debate. You want to get out there? We've got out there with Walmart and Amazon and all these others. There's an absolute legitimate debate to be had in America today about the, the, the life expectancy of the average American. Are we living too long? I mean, I think there's a legitimate debate to be had uh, around that question. I can tell you this, the entitlement programs and the life expectancy are at odds with one another. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the entitlement programs that allow you to participate in Social Security at 62, I mean, I, you know, you get a little bit of money at 62, a little bit more at 63, a little bit more, four, five, six. I think my full benefit is 67. Um, and then you can qualify for Medicare at 65. Um, and then you live another 20 years and you, you know, you deplete your, what, what you invested in social security. Um, maybe you deplete, maybe you don't, depending on how long you live, but Medicare is a no brainer. I mean, Medicare is where the driver of the, the expense is. And I mean, you know, how many, how many 75 year olds on Medicare going to a gym? I mean, that, that's kind of the point. See, I, I, my, my fundamental belief with, with healthcare, the problem with healthcare in America today is, is we've got to adjust the model. I mean, obviously, we got to change the eligibility age. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We've got to address that in a grown-up fashion. The other thing is we've got to reward people for taking ownership of their health and penalize those who don't. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, safe driver discount. You know, there's a reason a beach house insurance costs more than one not on the beach. The likelihood of a hurricane causing you know, big damage to that home and expensive repairs, uh, you know, insurance has to have these, um, these realities and practicalities. And at health insurance, we've just decided that it's everybody's responsibility to take care of everybody else. And that's just not fair. Um, why should, I've said this a million times, why should I go to the gym five days but pay for health insurance and be forced to subsidize somebody who goes to the drive-thru three times a day? I mean, I shouldn't. That's just not fair. Remember we talked yesterday, Reb, People don't understand quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. Uh, was the Fed's balance sheet uh, impeachment inquiries? I mean, all these, you know, political jargon that we throw around. But the one thing people understand, no matter what, ah, what situation you find yourself in, is fairness. I mean, people have a a pretty decent understanding of fair. That's fair. Now, I didn't say the world ran on fair. My my dad said, you know, the fair comes in October. But he also said some other things that uh, I've shared one with Rev recently about if you want to get blank, go to a <laughs> a blank house. Yeah. If you want to get blank, go to a courthouse. Right. I mean, you know, if you're... <laughs> right. so, so we'll just... but because we're on terrestrial radio, yeah, we'll, we'll, those blanks we'll let your mind uh, <laughs> imagine where we're talking about going to court. My father always said. You want to get this, you go there. You want to get that, you go there. Uh, I'll just, I'll just leave it. Very colorful. Well, I mean, he was always nervous about going to going to court. You know, and, and we always had business litigation. Sometimes we were on the plaintiff side, sometimes the, the defendant side. Sometimes it's hostile, and sometimes it's not that hostile. I mean, th- th- there would be times we get a call and say, "Hey, I got to sue everybody." You know, we had this situation in a business. Got to sue everybody. No hard feelings. You know, we're st- we're still going to do business together with one another. But this situation requires us to bring uh, – anyway, that's just the nastiness, the messiness of, uh, of business. But I want to go back to, I, you know, I would love to see the government wow, reward people for taking better care of themselves. 
I mean, I, I really and truly believe that is a fundamental incentive that a lot of people, people aren't worried. I mean, Josh is not going to react to his cholesterol number or his BMI, but his pocketbook. I mean, if, if Josh is paying, you know, let's just make up a number. If Josh is paying 200 bucks a month for insurance, and if Josh can get his weight down 20% and his BMI down 3%, and it saves him $100 a month on insurance, guess what Josh is more inclined to do? I mean, he's more inclined to go save that money. I mean, he's not as interested in cholesterol readings and BMI. I don't know what that means, man. I mean, I, what, what is healthy and unhealthy? But, but, but once you start incentivizing financially people for taking better care of themselves, I think that's the game changer. And I think the future of health care has to, in some way, shape, or form, include it's Josh's health care. It's Rev's health care. It's my health care. I'm all for, believe it or not, I'm all for some sort of set-aside fund for situations. Um, in other words, someone who doesn't have insurance gets cancer. I mean, I don't want that person to not receive treatment. I'm all about setting aside some amount of money that, that allows somebody who, uh, you know, because you could say, well, I mean, it's their fault. You know, they didn't get insurance and they didn't take care of themselves. Therefore, they get they get cancer. But there's got to be a balance of, you know, kind, kind of a, um, a fiscal model and, and humanitarianism. If that's the case, somebody, you know, we're, we're all to some degree humanitarians, right? I mean, I care about my fellow man. You care about your fellow man, but the fellow man has to care for himself. I mean, there has to be some degree of self accountability and self responsibility. And the guy going to the gym five days a week doesn't, shouldn't have to subsidize the insurance or the health insurance of the guy, you know, going to the drive through. Yeah. Biggie size that if you don't mind, eight, four, three, six, six, one, oh, nine, three, seven takes Monday's to make Fridays back in a few. 843 want to ask two of my lesser-informed um, colleagues here, Josh, and workout no-shot Josh, <laughs> and thinking about working out, yeah. but fix everything, Royal Rev. Always Radio. thinking about it. So what do you make of the UAW strike? I mean, conservative has historically been what? On the side of business, right? right? Those damn labor unions. I mean, they want everything. Well, not only they want everything, but they want their pay to go from 65 bucks an hour to about $116 an hour. I mean, there's a big increase. They want to work 32 hours a week. Now, this is negotiation. So you ask for everything, hoping to get some of what you've asked for. They're asking for a 32-hour work week, but to be compensated for 40 hours. They want a big increase in hourly wage, and they want to get paid for eight hours they aren't working. I want to be in that union. they do. I mean, I want to be in that union. That sounds like a great deal. But what do you make of, I mean, have, have you kept up with it, and what do you make of it? And do you agree that, Historically, Republicans have been, you know, kind of an anti-union and more of a pro-business. If we got to side with one or the other, you got these um, these union protester potential strikers, and you got Ford, GM, and Dodge or Chrysler. You and I historically, Rev, or people who think like we have, have historically given Ford, GM, and Chrysler the benefit of the doubt. That's right, and typically you hear that the the uh, union members and leadership are big supporters of. Democrat politicians. I mean, that's kind of just a, a given, the way the world works. I haven't kept up with it very much. I just started seeing some stories actually in the last day or so. So I don't know what the what the dynamic is and why. I guess there's a, is this a contract renewal time or something? Correct. Yep. I mean, this is negotiating a new contract between UAW and the legacy auto manufacturers <laughs> but, in America. But typically, you know, being a right-to-work state, you know, that's kind of the way I, my, my life has 
been for a long time. And when I hear union stories, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen some union stories up close when I used to go to from Cincinnati. Yeah. Well, and, and and really that was when I was, I was young then, but, um, I used to travel to radio and broadcast conventions. And these are of course in heavy unionized cities. You told me one day about the wire. (laughs) I mean, this sounds like something, a union, Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is why unions get a bad rap. I mean, because I want to get to Josh here in a second, but tell the story. And that's one of the stories I was thinking of. So we were doing, and this is the a company I worked for that that did uh, sold things to radio stations, sold computer systems, and I did installations. I was one of their technicians, traveled across the country. So one of the things we did every year was go to a broadcast convention or two, and these things are big. I mean, Las Vegas, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, all the you know big con- Chicago, big convention city. So uh, we were in Las Vegas, and the the company brought in a lot of a lot of us, the, the employees of the company, to build our booth. Okay, you rent the floor space, you set up a booth, you talk to the people that come to the convention, and then you know hopefully sell some of your equipment, et cetera, et cetera. You know how that works. Okay, so we're setting up our booth, and we would take the extension cords we brought with us and tape them across the floor underneath the little covering so they could power the, the demonstration kiosks. Follow me so far? So we had these wires the extension cords taped across the floor then a union guy comes riding up on a bicycle hey what you guys doing man we're just setting up our booth all right you know this is the so-and-so union's floor and we do all that kind of work said, well we you know brought enough employees we we got it we got it all covered he said no you you don't understand uh you can't do that work yeah but we just i mean all we did was take an extension cord and put it across the floor and put tape on it and everything he said no he said, here's the way this is going to work. He said, you guys are going to take all that stuff up you did, put it away, and then we're going to bring you a sheet, and you're going to choose how many cords you need to rent from us, and it will tell you how much it costs for us to install those for you, and that's the way it's going to be. Hope you understand that, uh, you know, we don't have to have any further discussion about this. I mean, it was it was pretty intimidating. They, they basically, you know, I don't want to say that they said. He was a, he was a heavy. Yeah, and uh, basically in, insinuated that if you guys, you know, don't do that, then, you know, we got some other guys over here. We'll come over here and talk to you about it and everything. So so we wrapped up our cords, put them away, and <laughs> the owner of the company signed the contract with the union and had them come put their cords down. And spent a couple of thousand dollars you didn't intend on spending. Yeah. And already had the cords down. Yeah. That, that, that's that the was other, a real-life experience. Sure, and I've heard stories like that, you know, one after the other after the other. I'll give you a quick story. And this is where good old boy meets union. So we had a truck driver go to a plant in Reading, Pennsylvania to pick up truck equipment. And he gets there at about 4.20 in the afternoon. And it's a 30-minute load. They close at 5. They had some union, I don't know, language in the union contract that said that if he's not notified before 4 o'clock, they don't load the truck. They can't load the truck. So our truck driver calls back to our business and says, look, uh, they're not going to loan me till tomorrow. I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. The truck had a sleeper on it. He said, I'd hope to get, cause we needed him to get to another place early that next morning. He said, guys, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it didn't go as I thought it would. I'm 20 minutes late. They're not going to help me. I mean, I can assure you with that. Now had that happened at, at our business, we'd have said, of course we'll figure something out. I mean, sit tight for 20 minutes. Just sit tight. We'll get a couple of forklifts. We'll get you loaded. We don't have union contracts. We know where you need to be. I mean, you don't need to sit in our parking lot all night. You need to be down the road so you can get other work done. But but instead, the union boss, to your point, uh, told our guy point blank. 
I don't know what to tell you, but it's your fault. You, you, you weren't here at 4 o'clock. It's 420. It's a 30-minute load. That gets us too close to 5. We have language in our contract that says we don't have to load anything after 4 o'clock. I'm, I'm sure you're a good dude, but have a nice day. It's about 12 degrees outside. I mean, it's about 12 degrees in Reading, Pennsylvania. He calls us apologizing. No need to apologize. I mean, things happen. You're driving a tractor trailer across, you know, six or seven states. We didn't expect things to go. But we expected good and decent people in business to understand other good and decent people in business need to conduct business and get their, and get their business done. Anyway, he has to sleep in the parking lot um, of the business because there is no hotels. They don't want to spend a couple of hundred bucks to get, to get a hotel. Doesn't want to cut the truck off mainly. Because, I mean, if you cut a diesel off in 12-degree weather, and I'm not saying there's a good chance it doesn't crank, but you're taking a chance that it doesn't crank up um, the next morning. So, anyway, he's um, he's sleeping in the truck. The, um, the, the union employees get to work at 8 o'clock the next morning. Uh, they kind of knock on the window. Hey, you know, you can back your truck at the door now. We, we've got time. The union contract says we can load you now at 8.05. Uh, this Thursday morning or whatever. So he backs the tractor trailer into their building, and there's about four feet of the the snout of his truck that won't allow the door to close. Now, remember, it's 12 degrees and the wind's blowing. So they knock on the window and said, you're going to have to cut your trailer loose and pull the truck out so we can pull the door back down. My employees are freezing. And I'll, I'll clean it up the best I can, but our truck driver said, I ain't backing a damn thing up. I'm not unhooking anything. Uh, you load the truck. So I mean, my truck driver tells the story. He said that wind must have been blowing 100 miles an hour in that 20-foot by 12-foot roll-up door, and I had about four feet of my truck, and they were cussing me every breath. He said, but they didn't cuss me anymore that morning. I cussed them that afternoon. So he kind of figured it was be it was so so. I mean, <laughs> irony. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I mean the irony of of a union employee saying, "No, nah, we can't load you this afternoon. Sleep in the truck in the yard." And that happens a lot. I mean, things don't always go as planned. But but in our in the non-union world, there's no way that guy wouldn't have got loaded that afternoon. I mean, we would have respected him trying to get to his next stop. You know, do his next thing, make his living, get back home to be with his family. But but he, I mean, I thought it was hilarious because I know this guy. He's a little bit rambunctious anyway and he said you know when, when they tried to pull the door down at about four foot of my truck was sticking out of their door i knew what they were going <laughs> to ask me to cut my truck loose and he said i ain't cutting i'm a blankety 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 he said we had a few choice words and um <laughs> but he said he was kind of a big boy but i had my i had my just a wrench under my seat and i <laughs> felt i could really take care of myself if indeed uh we digress yeah but we certainly do <laughs> but, but but what is the story with well, the I mean, unions to, to me and, and i want to get josh's take i mean I want to include him in this. Uh, Josh went to the gym and he needs to be rewarded for going for going to the gym. So, Josh, what do you make of the UAW dispute with um, the legacy with, with the big three? It's really the big two and one more. I mean, we, we, we don't want to embarrass Chrysler and say it's the. I mean, it's not the big three anymore. GM and Ford are big companies. Chrysler's not so much a big company, but we're accustomed to saying the big three. So these labor disputes and there's some other uh, auto manufacturers involved. What do you make of it, Josh? Um, I. Have you kept up at all? I have not, admittedly, but I'll say this. The thing that came to mind when you brought it up was we're constantly, like, America has essentially become deindustrialized, and all these uh, companies, even ones that are founded in America, are shipping their work off to China. And why is that? Because China's workers, it's essentially slave labor. You know, they're making pennies on the dollar. They're working, like, 14-hour days, and I don't think that's good. I think we should try and bring all these industries back to America. 
while still I don't think America should do that by incentivizing these slave labor my slave labor like mentality, but that like this is ridiculous. I think Well, I mean the unions at- the unions kind of drove some of these companies. I mean the, the union gr- agreements and deals got so expensive mm-hmm. that companies had to look other places to make a profit. I mean, that's why a lot of Ford trucks are made in Mexico. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I mean, and I'm not defending Ford or GM. I mean, I'm kind of an anti-corporatist Republican right, right. right now. But, <laughs> and I'm all about people making a fair sure, wage. A, a fair wage, a, a good wage, not just a fair wage, yeah. a good wage. I wanted to make a, a good wage and live a good, you know, upper middle class life working at one of these auto manufacturing plants. But, but the irony of this is the very people that gave Democrats money are at odds with Democrat policy. To build electric vehicles, if we transition as aggressively as the Biden administration and Democrats that labor unions fund, if we transition to an EV-centric transportation model in America, we're going to have 40% fewer workers at Ford, GM, and Chrysler. I mean, I've seen the spreadsheets. I mean, it, it's pretty, uh, it could be as much as 50%. The, the electric vehicle is a lot easier to build, a lot less manpower. There, this is not easier. A lot less labor intensive than the internal combustion engine. And I mean, we played the Ford CEO earlier this week about the um, the number of contracts they're entering in. And what has happened here, Rev, is the the federal government is trying to transition, force feed, you know, Ford, GM, and Chrysler the EV standards, these new standards of which auto manufacturers have to uh, abide by, you know, CO2 emissions and uh, decarbonization. I mean, it, it gets complicated if you want to. I mean, I've read extensive articles about it. Some of it I understand. Some of it I get a little bit lost in, in trying to, okay, what is a, um, what, what, how, how much CO2 is that? You know, m- megatons and microtons. I mean, I, I don't understand how much uh, CO2 emits that is, but, but it gets a little bit, some of these thresholds and variables that I don't fully understand. But but what the labor unions are basically saying is, in the long run, if we're forced to build electric vehicles, we're going to be forced to do it with fewer people. And if we're doing it with fewer people, the fewer people need to be a little more exclusive and the exclusivity of the pay. I mean, I, I think that's they're asking for a, a large, in, they, they're not going to get 40% pay increase. They're not going to get 32 hours work. 40 hours um, paid. But the irony of this is, and I said it yesterday to John Decker, they're not negotiating with GM, Ford, and Chrysler. I mean, they're negotiating with the federal government. The labor unions are basically saying, hey, about all those subsidies you're giving the manufacturers that you need to convince them or force them to give us, make concessions to us in the name of the, uh, of the subsidies. I just think we've made a terrible, terrible strategic decision in forcing the auto manufacturing industry to abide by some of the uh, the decarbonization standards or requirements that, that are going to be in place. And, and companies are going to be rewarded if they meet, penalized if they don't. It, it's, a, it's a monumental decision that these companies are having to deal with. The difference in this and all the other times, the government's not really on the labor union side. I mean, the government's subsidizing the manufacturer. That's the only way the manufacturer can afford to build electric vehicles. I mean, the government, Ford and, and GM, I mean, if Ford and GM had to build electric cars today with no incentives or subsidies from the government, they'd close in a year. They would go fundamentally bankrupt. 
but the government is kind of sliding them some some do re mi on the side. Uh, I mean, we talked uh, a couple of weeks back about the 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 three thousand workers Ford just laid off. I mean, they, on their on their in their shareholders report, it said the reason we're laying these three thousand workers off is we've lost X number of dollars in every electric vehicle we've made. If we don't sell any more electric cars, we can probably keep these three thousand people. But if the government's going to require us, and, and and that's with the subsidies, I mean the government's requiring Ford, GM, and Chrysler to do this. They're subsidizing to some degree, and it's still not enough. And Ford and GM, in the name of shareholder profitability and accountability, have to lay off another um, three thousand employees. Let's take a break. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, it's somewhat like Amazon and and Walmart in that people who see the world as conservatives do find themselves a little bit conflicted on, on what to believe, what not to believe, um, you know, what should happen in the outcome here. I, I've argued for two years, uh, really for seven years, that I want the Republican Party to be a pro-worker party. So if you want the Republican Party to be a pro-worker party, where does America first line up in this three-way ordeal? It's not a negotiation between UAW and the manufacturers. It's a three-way negotiation. The government has a, a mammoth role to play in this because of the subsidies they're giving these companies to build cars that nobody wants because they cost too much money. Politically, it's interesting to me because you know the unions traditionally support the Democrats, so they've been basically supporting the people that want to kill them. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony. I mean, the irony is you're giving money to Democrats. The Democrats are forcing the auto manufacturers to stop making internal combustion engines, and that's going to cost a bunch of you your job. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Isn't this philosophically the debate we've had? Uh, like Larry said, you grab a beer and you uh, you know philosophize on what's fair and not fair. Excuse me, not fair. Um, what the workers should get. But 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 the point that I've tried to make, and I think this is a fair way to argue. I mean, I don't know the answer, but I think this is the fairest way to argue in a business. What share of the revenue or profit does the worker get? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but that's kind of what we're addressing or dealing with. And when you look at a, I'll give an example. So my my oldest son is in a. I mean, he's trying to follow a career path in hospitality and tourism. I mean, he's got a job with a privately held company. There's another opportunity in a publicly held company, and he's asking me for advice. And I'm discouraging him because he asked me. I mean, I'm not trying to tell him what to do or where to go or who to work for, but but he's working with a privately held company, a chance to work, make a little more money with a publicly held company. But I've tried to tell him, yeah, but that publicly held company, you're more inclined to be a number. But I'm not saying one company's better run than the other because I don't know enough about the companies. I just know one is a fortune 250 company, the other's privately held, been around since the beginning of time, really good at what they do. And I've just tried to explain to him, here's this dynamic and here's this other dynamic. And the biggest, the biggest difference in the dynamic, as far as I'm concerned, is there's not going to be a shareholder share in the privately held company. I mean, the owners of the business are going to get most of the money. I mean, that's just the nature of business. Some of those who sign the notes and take the risk 
I mean, they're rewarded by, you know, when the company succeeds, succeeds, they should get more of the money. No doubt about it. I mean, you know, the people who work for the business have never signed a note, you know, borrowing money or, or you know, um, hawking their home or whatever it is when business people do it. But, but I think we've gotten ourselves in a place, and I think Donald Trump is probably a, a representation of the country believing. Now, we didn't sit around and, and have this debate, but I think subconsciously we decided that the fat cats on Wall Street are getting more than their fair share and the guy on the assembly line is getting less. I mean, in essence, that's, now it gets complicated after that. But, but I think a lot of the Trump momentum and the America First movement is predicated on a belief that, now if you ask somebody what EBITDA is, I don't know. NOI, I don't know. ROI, I don't know. Do you believe that the, the, the financier on Wall Street is getting more than his fair share of Company X and the money he's getting probably should go to the worker? Because I've argued we've gotten this uh, misalignment. It's kind of an asymmetrical relationship between the donor class who advocate for shareholder return and the working class who advocate for what? Pay labor a little more. You know, and I don't know where that balance is. I mean, I would imagine it's different in different places, but but I do believe that Wall Street financiers would pay a worker nothing. I mean, I believe that. I, I think they believe that capitalism is a not an economic theory; it's an idol, and it's to be worshipped at the altar of. And if we can get all the money, then let's get all the money. So when Goldman Sachs helps finance a, a, an entrepreneur in a business. I mean, if, if the entrepreneur in the business told Goldman Sachs, I think I can get these people to work for nothing. I mean, I think they'll do it for zero. I think Goldman Sachs would say, okay, we'll give you a better rate. That's, that's the yin and yang that I think we've dealt with in the marketplace and in the free market. I'm not saying that's what the UAW and the, and the auto manufacturers are dealing with, but I think in general, in general, the, 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 the Trump phenomenon and the driver of that phenomenon, I mean, I, I get globalism and interventionism, China, but, but a lot of that is associated with this relationship that capital has with labor, labor has with capital, and, and I believe that capital has gotten far more than its fair share at the expense of labor. And we're trying to get that back into some, uh, you know, modicum of balance. And I don't know what that balance is. It would be interesting to break down the revenue. Let's say, um, let's say Ford and GM. I mean, it'd be interesting to say of all the revenue it generates, how much goes to shareholder? Because I just don't believe if, if, if Rev works at Ford and I'm an investor in Ford, I help provide the capital that allows them to do what they do. But Rev builds the cars. I think Rev should be, if there's a line of people who should be taken care of, I think the guy who punches the clock every morning with a, with a lunch pail in hand should be made a whole, whatever that means, before the guy that sends a million dollars to Goldman Sachs and says, invest this for me in foreign GM. I mean, and I think we've, we're in the process of trying to, to invert that. And then once again, what is fair? <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, I can't begin to, to, to understand how to get there. But, but I, I believe that of the revenue American companies have generated, Wall Street has gotten more than its fair share. The workers have gotten less than theirs. Let's go to the phone. Here's Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. No, I was actually quite interested in the thing about your son, you know, the public versus private company. And I grew up in a small family-owned business. 
And, you know, we have some great employees that were with us for a long time. The problem is there's only so far you can go in a smaller family-owned business because that thing is set up primarily for that family. And, you know, eventually you either come in as a partner or you have to leave if you've reached a certain level and want to go higher. And, you know, I'll, there's a lot to be said for working for a large corporation, you know, like you said, a public company, because he could transfer around. He could probably pick up a lot of valuable experience that he'd never get in just a local business. So it's kind of a coin toss there if you're looking to eventually expand, open your own company in the hospitality industry, whatever. So when, let, let me ask you this, local. Rick. Let, let me ask you, I want to get your take on this. You're right. Yes, I mean, the, the, the fam- I worked in a family-owned business. I just happened to be in the family. <laughs> so, so, you know, I kind of won <laughs> exactly. the lottery on that part of it. My dad started a business. Uh, his my, his two sons kind of followed and ran the business, and I think we probably didn't do as good as, we, as he did, but we did the best. We knew how. We didn't fail. I mean, you know, the business still operates, and, and my brother still owns 100% of the business. But if the, if the family business exists to basically serve the family, and I agree with that, what does the public business exist for? It exists to serve the stockholders. And, and I, feel, I feel for you, my family business no longer exists. It was office supplies and office machines. And, you know, that, that pretty much went under with Staples and Office Depot. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just got, thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. And, and I'm not, once again, I don't know that I'm telling my kid the right thing to do. I mean, I'm doing the best way I know how. You know, I'm telling him from my experience. Now, now, once again, had I worked in a family business as a non-family member, I would probably have a different opinion. I always butted heads, not butted heads. We had these very candid debates. With, 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 I mean, there were people in our family business that remember me when I was a small kid getting in the way. And the next thing you know, I have the authority to tell them what to do. And, and I, I, that for a long time, it was, it was problematic. I mean, it was not a big deal for them as was for me. Like, like, Hey man, you remember me when I was in diapers and, and, and st- you remember dad coming out here talking to you about how sorry I was. And now no count my brother was. Now I'm the guy telling you, don't get the blue truck, get the red truck. You know, don't get the Ford, get the GM. And, and they would always respond to me. I mean, we'd have some conversation about, they'd always say, look, dude, I, I know blood's thicker than water. I mean, don't, don't, this didn't catch me off guard. I mean, I knew one day if there was a secession plan and it was me, your brother, and you, I lose. You know, if, if, if my last name is not the same last name as the owner and the owner's making a decision about who to, now, you know, put in charge of the business, I'm not crazy. I mean, I always knew that the, you know, the moment you and your brother decided to get into the business was the moment that I was probably going to continue, you know, in the life I was in. And, and I, you know, it's just, it, it's a complicated matter. But but once again, and, and this, this may be why I'm like this, I'm big on eyeballing. I mean, you know, that, that's a country. I'm big on being able to go to someone who can make a decision. And I've just found in, I had one relationship with a major American corporation, and it drove me back crap crazy. I mean, Rev knows the one I'm talking about. I mean, I had a business subservient to a major American corporation, and it kept me up at night. It drove me crazy the way they did things. 
and the way they made me do things. And there was no negotiating. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't sit down, you know, with your brother and your dad and say, hey, what about this? Oh, no. There was an edict or an order, and guess what you did? I mean, it was already decided. They didn't ask you for your opinion. <laughs> Here's what we've decided, and you better get it done. And it made me miserable. I mean, it just drove me crazy because that was foreign to me. You know, that, that I, was, I was normally in the room when some of these decisions were made about where we're going and what we're doing. And in that particular situation, nobody ever asked me anything <laughs> except do this or else. Let's go to the phone. Here is Breeze. Good morning. You're on. Kids, you know, when you're talking about this situation with the UAW, you know, it kind of goes back to that whole Jimmy Hoffa thing and stuff like that. The only people that are get that always get screwed is going to be the worker. UAW is, is you know, the bad guys are the people that run the unions. The union is just another big business. Chrysler, GM, and Ford are just other big businesses. The union doesn't give a rat's behind about the workers. They're using the workers to, to enrich themselves. GM, Ford, and Chrysler doesn't give a crap about the workers. They're using the workers to enrich themselves. So basically, you're a worker, and you say, okay, I'm working for a, for a terrible bunch of dang old uh, scumbags at GM. So what do I do? Well, let me get a bunch of terrible worthless scumbags from the, that, that run to run the unions like the UAW or the steel workers or the truck drivers like Hoffa. I mean, because anybody will tell me that these unions and the mafia are tied in, they're all low life. And who's getting screwed again is the worker. But I, another thing I was wondering if any of your other um, viewers saw this, I had to go to a funeral yesterday, and Glenn Beck had a, wanted to get some guy over from Texas. I think he may have been head of the ag, Department of Agriculture or whatever. But our government has a plan to own one-third of all of the land in America. I think right now I think we may have 10% maybe or something. I don't know what it is. And, it's about but 9%. They own about 9% of all acreage today. Did you see that, kid? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read some stories about, you know, and Beck's one of these guys. I mean, you know how he is. I mean, he's he's normally a, I'm yeah. a, give you, I mean, he's a conspiracy theorist. But at times, he's ahead of the curve. Some of these things he talks about come to fruition. Yeah, but does it surprise you that their ultimate goal is to own half of the land and then just leave the land idle? And then they will turn around and say, you can't graze cattle. You can't raise, you, They have all of these different ways to take your land. You know, through eminent no domain, and they have these little things where, like a lot of these ranchers, have these um, generational leases to where they can graze their cattle, grow crops on on, 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 you know, these, this national this, yeah, land, but they're taking them away, and then they still cause these these conservation easements, and then the problem with the conservation easement is the person that had put the land in the conservation easement can't do anything with it, destroys its value, but like the city of Fort Worth or Columbia or whatever can use it for anything. The point I'm making is, does it surprise you that your federal government would like to own half of the land in America and dictate what it is to do with it? I mean, that kind of stuff scares me. You, 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 know, you know what I'm saying? I just, you know, like I said, I'm with you on Beck, but I'm sitting there thinking about this. I said, there's a lot of daggone evil. There's evil going on there. But I'm telling you, they're the only good guys probably in this whole fight are the workers. The guys that run the unions are not the good guys, and neither is Ford or GM or whatever. 
while we're arguing this and all, these people that are trying to do this great reset are out to get us. And I'm wondering here in South Carolina, is the federal government trying to do the same thing here that they're doing in Texas? How are you? Because know, they're doing it without, in other words, they even have ways of the government of buying the land. And you don't realize you sold your land to the federal government till you till you go in till you've accepted the deal and you go in to sign the papers. Then you realize you just sold your land to the to the federal government for them to do with whatever they want. And I tell you, all of this stuff, man, just really, really, really. If you don't want people to have conspiracy theories. Quit giving us reasons to have them. You know what I'm saying, brother? I got you. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, Dr. Bolt said Tuesday, because we talked about conspiracy theories and distrust of government, and, and Bolt made an interesting, I mean, he's an early American history, and he said the government didn't have much power. I mean, no, nobody's afraid of the government if they don't have a lot of power. Because it wasn't that big. Sure, it was limited. The country and, was smaller, It was too. kind of, I mean, the first run in American government was largely Jeffersonian. I mean, he had these Hamiltonian influences, no doubt about it, and it was a fundamental debate about, you know, what the government eventually became. I've argued Jefferson won the battle, but Hamilton won the war. And, and if you read a lot of Jefferson's, you know, writings and opinions, I mean, that, that was his biggest concern. I mean, it's going to be, if you allow one entity or enterprise to consume or assume that much influence and, and ability to dictate, it's going to become corrupt. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's illogical to believe that if you allow one entity, let's use Breeze's point. I mean, let's say the government owns 9% of all acreage in America today, and they want to own 40%. I mean, but, but if you are a Democrat and you trust government to do right, don't you believe you're doing God's work? I mean, if you can get land out of the hands of these capitalists, and these entrepreneurs and these people trying to profit from, you know, farming or whatever, whatever you're building hotels on acres, building roads, uh, developing property. Um, I mean, if you believe that given a choice to trust the individual or the government, I mean, Demo liberals, I don't say Democrats, that's unfair. Liberals, in theory, trust the government more than they do the individual. So if you've got all this acres that be, can be productive and can be managed and can be an asset, and you fundamentally trust the government more than you do an individual, and the government owns 9% of the acreage, but there's a way for the government to own 40%, you believe the country's in a better place, if that's the case. But Jeffersonians believe that you just open yourself up for so much corruption. The government can't be trusted. A central planner can't be I'm given that responsibility and authority. I mean, it's got to be delved out amongst all the individuals. Josh has to have a say, and Rev, and me, and, and all of us others. But, but it's not, I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise anybody to, to question whether there are people who believe that. Now, I don't know if Beck's right. I don't have any idea. I've not heard what Beck said about, you know, going from 9 to 50%. But I do know that half the country refer to themselves as liberals. Liberals by nature believe in government, are at least more sympathetic to government, and that's kind of been the fundamental um, yin and yang. My problem has been, I mean, I've, I've got a problem with the government owning and controlling so much of the economy, but, but you know, I, as much as I don't like that, what really alarms me is the government becoming punitive. In, in other words, we've got one half of the country that want the government to own 50% of the land, 
You got another half that says nine's too much. But the, gov- the, the people and the government conspiring together with one another to force these things. I mean, it's not a natural transition. It's not, you know, um, we talked about a business secession plan. I mean, you know, the South was built on the kid taking over the business from the parent. I mean, that's kind of the way the South has been. Uh, that's kind of an honored tradition, a time-honored um, tradition. But, but when the government assumes that much influence and power, combined with its likelihood to become punitive, I mean, that's when it scares the daylights out of me. Government has all this power, all this authority. What are they motivated by? Oh, but they would never be punitive. But that's where I'm headed, Rev. I mean, if you've got a group of people who are sympathetic to government, believe everything's better off if government has more control, but they're altruistic, okay. I mean, I don't like it, but at least they're out, you know, not not trying to get me, so to speak. But, but you know, people like me, and there, there are a lot of us, people like me believe not only does the government have too much authority and ability to, 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 to dominate, they're a bit punitive to those who disagree. I mean, that, that's dangerous. I mean, that's where Breeze it. That's dangerous if that's the case. Who wins that battle? I mean, the government wins that battle. What did Mellencamp say? Fight authority. Yeah, I fight authority, and authority always wins. Take a break. Back in a few. Four three six six one zero nine three seven. That's more of a philosophical conversation than it is policy. I mean, it's abstract. It's inexact. It's ambiguous. I mean, there are a lot of descriptive you could you could use there, but it's a, an interesting debate at a tailgate. I mean, it really and truly is. If you get a bunch of really really smart people like me around a tailgate, uh, we don't talk about the SEC or the ACC's has and have nots. We're delving into. The, the proper allocation of capital opposed to uh, opposed to labor. Oh, really? uh, yeah, there, there you go. Um, I would make a, a hell of an advisor yeah. to a highfalutin politician. Speaking of highfalutin politicians, we got Congressman Russell Fry with us. Congressman, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm about highfalutin, but you know we're here. And there, there you go. And we're glad, we're glad to have you here. Um, you're an interesting person to talk to at all times, especially this morning, because if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I'm wrong. You were on two of the three committees that are responsible for the impeachment inquiry that House Speaker McCarthy agreed to launch um, earlier this week. Is that, a, is that an accurate statement, and what do you perceive your involvement to eventually be? Well, it is very accurate. I'm one of three uh, Republicans that are on both the oversight and judiciary committees. So the others are Jim Jordan um, and Andy Biggs of Arizona, and so – you know, for, for, for me, it, it, you've got two sides of this equation. On the one hand, with the oversight, you've got the Hunter Biden emails, you've got the transactions, you've got the FD Den 23, all the stuff related to kind of the Biden crime family. And on the flip side of that coin, the scope of House Judiciary has really been kind of the cover-up, right? Why were, pro- why were statute of limitations allowed to expire for multiple felonies and misdemeanors why is the Department of Justice slow walking this? Why are they targeting their own whistleblowers and trying to squeeze them? These are kind of the things that judiciary is exploring. And so I've seen it. I actually, you know, I read the transcripts. I go to the hearings. I'm part of the process. I interview these people. And so I kind of have a pretty comprehensive view um, of, of this entire operation um, and, and how it looks and, and, and the, the, the timeline of things and how you know, really, it's, 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 a, it's an unfortunate place to be uh, if you're an American citizen watching this unfold in our very own country and nothing's being done. Russell, Hunter Biden, some believe it's a human tragedy. Some believe he's a degenerate. 
I mean, I kind of think it's a little both. But but the reality is he's not president. And and as much as we're interested in what he did, this is all about did Joe Biden um, participate in some of the money that Hunter Biden made working for foreign agents, doing things that, you know, we just can't really understand. So, so I want you to, if, if you don't mind, and, and disclose as much as you're allowed, but what bit of information is the most compelling you've seen so far that does connect Hunter Biden to Joe Biden? Right. And, and I'll say, you know, this is not a finished product, right? We still are uncovering bank accounts. We're still uncovering fake pseudonyms that they're using and trying to get those emails to kind of paint this picture. But here's, here's, what, I, here's what I know. You have Hunter Biden that, according to Devin Archer, who was Hunter Biden's um, uh, business partner, Joe Biden was the brand. They were the brand. Uh, they used him. He was kind of the closer, if you will. He met with, you know, he'd get on the phone uh, with Hunter Biden's uh, clients. Uh, he'd pop into a coffee shop or dinner. Um, the closest thing, I think, that, that really highlights this is the Ukrainian issue. Because here you have, you have Hunter Biden, who, according to the FD-1023, was dumber than a dog, he is hired for $83,000 a month to be put on the board of Burisma. And the reason why he was put on the board, according to the FD-1023, is because of his connections in Washington. And then Devin Archer testifies that when they were in Dubai for a, an executive meeting with you know, all the Burisma executives, Burisma was trying to expand into different markets, and they were looking at acquiring a United States company. But one of the biggest impediments to them being able to do that is this prosecutor in Ukraine who was looking at them. So at this meeting in Dubai, the executives asked Hunter Biden to call Washington, D.C. Well, we all know what that means. And then with, within a week, Hunter Biden is on Air Force Two headed to Ukraine with his dad who withholds money to fire a prosecutor. And, of course, he brags about it. And so Joe Biden, I think that is right now, to me, the clearest uh, – and, again, it gets clear every day. But that is probably the clearest example of, of how this affects and how Joe Biden, you know, did – you know, performed actions as, a, as the vice president to support his son and his son's business ventures. In the normal routine of investigation, it seems to me that many Republicans believe the DOJ has stonewalled, slow-walled, not provided in timely fashion some of the material you guys on committees have asked for. What about the impeachment inquiry intensifies those requests? Well, uh, uh, a couple things. One, the oversight of just any House committee, any Senate committee, is to help shape public policy, right? That's kind of the goal. And with here, you have, you have kind of a transition. Now that we have gone from uh, just investigations and oversight into what is now an inquiry, it really transforms that. It is no longer about public policy per se. It's about what actions were taken and why. And uh, you know, you've got potential bribery issues out there. So look, the Constitution prescribes a remedy to hold these uh, officials accountable. Judges, senators have been impeached before. Um, this is no different. And, and I think it, from, from a court perspective, when you go in and you have to fight some of these battles in court about information that we need, 
The Constitution is very clear. We have a role, a natural role in this, and I think it strengthens our hand in being able to get the information that they are stonewalling us from being able to get. Okay, last question, and we'll get into weeds here for a second. Yeah. McCarthy didn't call for a floor vote. I've been in politics. That leads me to believe he didn't have the votes. What sort of information do you believe is out there that could convince some of the swing district Republicans to get on board? Well, um, a lot, and I've offered to sit down with all of them. Um, Can you tell us how many there are? I think there was like roughly five or six um, uh, in the end that were, I I don't don't know if they were hard-nosed, but they were hesitant. Um, And again, I said this uh, on Fox News the other day. They said, well, do you want to vote or not a vote? I said, I don't really care how we get there, but I think it's time to start that process. And uh, we had a, a meeting this week up here uh, where House Republicans came in. Chairman Jordan was there. Chairman um, Comer was there. Uh, the speaker was there. And they kind of went through the timeline. You know, I live this every day because I'm on these committees. But if you're not, you know, it's kind of hard to track and to follow with all the transactions, all the things that are going on. And so they did a really good job, I thought, of kind of showing the timeline, showing the actions that were taken, showing how things were stonewalled. And um, many people, I think, were left with a good bit of information that they, you know, they otherwise didn't have or they didn't understand how the dots connected. Well explained. Congressman, thank you for your time this morning. Uh, You're in Washington this weekend? I'm in Washington. I'm flying home today. Okay. When you get back, I, I know you make it a priority to try to travel the district and understand you know, I mean, this is a very unique district. Got a big population center down around the Grand Strand, and it's more sparsely populated. Is it your intent to continue um, kind of being out and about in the district in different sorts of places? And if so, how can people find out um, where you'll be and when you'll be there? Well, yeah, great question. We just got done with August recess. We put close to 2,000 miles of my car in the district bouncing around. We were in every county. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. Look to social media. When we come into your, you know, your area, we put it out there. We text you. Um, you know, we get it. We, we try to put it in your face so that, that we can see you. We'd love to see you. Uh, I love doing these events and these town halls. We were in Chesterfield, Darlington, Florence. Uh, we have three town halls in the month of August. And so we're going to keep coming back and keep doing it. Appreciate you, my man. Um, keep up the good work and keep us in the, uh, keep us in the loop. Absolutely. Y'all have a good morning. Thank you. Take a break. Now let's not take a break. Let's um let's do this. Well, let's do, yeah, let's take a break cuz I'm going to come back and um I'm not on the judiciary committee. I'm not on the oversight committee. I'm not on the ways and means committee. <laughs> but I do believe we can paint a fairly compelling picture as to why an impeachment inquiry was necessary. I'm still concerned that it was not a floor vote. I mean, that, that there are about uh, I've heard as many as 11. Russell says 5. I've heard 11. Who knows? Um Somewhere between 5 and 11, Republicans are a bit uncomfortable with voting for uh, the beginning of an impeachment inquiry. Uh, I'd like to sit down with those 5 to 11 and turn on some of my Southern persuasive <laughs> charm. <laughs> well, do you think they're in you know swing states or districts that could go you know, vote for? Well, without question. Okay, I mean, that, you know, that's the reason? Well, I mean, th- 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 yeah, I mean, th- there's a pursuit of the truth after, <laughs> after. That there's a looking out for your uh, own best increasing interest. or declining chance of getting elected. You know, what, what is the most important thing to a congressman's life right now? Getting reelected. And in the House, it's every two years. So you're never not running for office. 
you're always running for office. The Senate's a little bit different. I mean, Lindsey can do something to make you mad and have time to, to, to allow you to heal a little bit and him apologize for it. The House is different. And I think some of these Republicans in swing districts are nervous to go down that road. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. couple of callers on the phone. Let's go there. Donovan in Darlington. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, Ken. I've got some information to share with y'all. Haven't really seen a whole lot of it on the news, but on October the 4th of this year, 10-4, the FCC and FEMA are doing a nationwide emergency test broadcast to all mobile devices, cell phones, you know, flip phones, anything that basically you use as a cell phone, radio and television. It's supposed to be the first nationwide thing they're doing. Not sure if you've heard anything about it, but just wanting to put this out there so people aren't alarmed of what's going on. Thank you, Donovan. Appreciate that. Rev's nodding his head. He would yeah. be the resident expert in that field. I know nothing of what you just informed me about, Rev. The is, floor uh, is yours. Yeah, there is a national EAS test, the emergency alert oh, 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 system, okay, which, okay. which radio does participate in. Obviously, if you're a broadcast facility, all the broadcast facilities do. And it's it's basically a, a single point entry uh, in Washington, I assume, where they initiate a test and they do try to get these alerts across every every medium there is. And that includes your devices and broadcast, cable, everywhere you're connected. And radio does participate in that, so we're aware that that is coming up. And it's not the first time. They've done national EAS tests probably. Um, even with, even with um, personal devices like cell phones and whatnot? I don't know that those were included in the broadcast part of the national EAS, but I know we participated in the national test for this is probably will be the fourth the fourth time. And we and we have responsibilities, um, just you know, clerical responsibilities. We have to report our systems and then report back to the FCC to say, okay, this worked, this didn't work, because it's actually a test to make sure the systems uh, perform like they are supposed and to. And the system would be in case of what? I mean, we're testing for the eventual scenario of what? Well, you you think of the the emergency alert system as weather. That's mostly what it's used for. Mostly, you're hearing. You know, weather, tornado warnings, severe thunderstorm warnings. That's when you when you hear the little bursts and the tones, and then the message. That's an uh, that's an emergency alert. Um, so this would be in the event of a national emergency, where say a president had to get a message to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. They could put this message out, and it would get on every broadcast facility, every device, anything that's connected would receive that message. Okay. And so it's a t- and you and you're right. It is coming. Up. I thought Twitter already did that. <laughs> really? Let's go to the phone. Is everybody on Twitter? <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. You're on. Yeah. Good morning, guys. Yeah. Real quick on the impeachment thing. I think the border crisis with him not enforcing the border and all the deaths with fentanyl and and the the, the murders and the child trafficking and the fact that the Supreme Court knocked him down on the student loan debt forgiveness, and he's still doing I think that's more impeachable. You know, that's a quicker impeachment than what they're trying to go for. But, you know, like they always say, if there's nothing wrong and he did nothing wrong, why not be open and, and let him investigate? But my main point this morning is, you know, you're talking about the unions and everything. These people voted for this. 
Barack Obama told them that, you know, if you're in coal or coal-fired plants, we're going to bankrupt you, put you out of business. And the unions went, yay, and we want some of that. And Ford and GM and all these other ones, Brock, or Biden said, we're going to stop fossil fuels, and we're going to make you do EVs. Well, they know they're not profitable, but yet they still voted for it. And, and the American people are dumber than a box of rocks sometimes, but you know they tell us what they're going to do, and they, yeah, let's do that. We're going to have to change our history, change our language. They've changed the definition of, what, 1,500 words already? You know, words mean things, but to these people, they just change it as they want to go and, you know, call you a bigot or something because you don't agree with them. But anyway, just, we're going to get past this. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Jumping around a bit, uh, I read a stat uh, one day this week. The, the, the supply of the EV inventory. I mean, the number of electric vehicles sitting on lots somewhere waiting to be sold, Ford believes they got 103 days of supply. And the internal combustion engine, they believe they've got a 51 day. I mean, it's never exact because it's kind of a fluid. You know, it's different at 4 o'clock in the afternoon than it was at 8 o'clock that morning. But, um, but I read something in CNBC or Bloomberg talking about the UAW strike and the, you know, the negotiations and transitioning from the internal combustion engine to the, uh, to the electric vehicle. They're building electric cars. Nobody, nobody, they're just not buying. I mean, nobody's selling, uh, excuse me, nobody's buying the electric car that the government's trying to force dealerships to sell. And there's 103 days of supply with electric vehicles and only 51 days of supply. I think I read, what, what is the, uh, what is the Ford EV, the 150, the lightning, lightning or whatever they call it. I think there's 116 days of unsold um, lightning F-150 pickup trucks. And, um, you know, and I heard the Ford CEO say, well, I mean, this truck's not for everybody. It's a little bit like, you know, um, he, he's never discussed business with his son. <laughs> it's almost like Ford uh, and, and GM are moving the goalposts now. <laughs> um, you know, this truck is going to revolutionize the auto industry. Well, I mean, this truck's not for everybody. You know, when you hear these stories about charging stations and pulling loads and the torque needed to pull loads. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a work in progress. I get that. I mean, I understand that. And you know, to some degree, I understand the way Ford and GM are having to deal with this because some of this is out of their control. I mean, the big bad government is requiring of auto manufacturers, you know, certain things that they've historically never had uh, to obligate themselves to. Got a couple of minutes. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Bill in Florence. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. I know this is off the subject, but uh, I read something yesterday where the total amount of equipment that we have given or will give to Ukraine is uh, about $45 billion. And it struck me because that happens to be about the same amount as we left behind in Afghanistan. Uh, Nobody seemed to be upset today about what we left behind in Afghanistan, and yet we all seem to be concerned about how much we're giving to Ukraine. Uh, the Biden administration seems to be willing to uh, throw into the trash can uh, $45 billion they left behind in Afghanistan, but 
they're really concerned about spending that kind of money for winning a uh, conflict with uh, against Russia. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. I'm I'm understanding. I mean, I've read some of this. It seems to me. I mean, it, when, when you take monetary contribution and military arsenal, we're over a hundred billion dollars. I mean, that's support of Ukraine. It's over a hundred billion. I mean, you could argue it's a hundred five billion, hundred thirty billion. I mean, there, there's some weird ways of accounting, but with the with the amount of military armaments we provided to Ukraine or NATO and the the monetary support. It's over a hundred million. Now let's go to the forty-five million billion left behind in um in Afghanistan. I've read uh, in several different places that about twenty-five of the forty-five billion military equipment and armament left behind was disabled. I mean, that the, there there are software issues. They pulled out panels, and but there's about twenty to twenty-five billion that the Taliban now have in their possession, and I mean, you put the Taliban, mm. you combine the Taliban and $25 billion of American military, you got trouble on your hands. Back in a few. It takes Mondays to make Fridays, and this Friday we're going to test the extremes of our capabilities and capacities. Right, Josh and Rev? Uh, yes. Right? I have nothing to do with it. If it fails miserably, <laughs> Representative Jordan and Lowe are on location in Greenville at a caucus meeting, and we think they're on the phone with us. Is that right? You guys there? Yes, we're here. We okay. just had a little pause for uh, dramatic value. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it made us wonder yeah, for we just were, a second. We were waiting with bated breath. Now, Senator Rickenbaugh is in the studio um, as a good public servant. Would be, uh, <laughs> as you would expect, a good public servant. And uh, while these boys are gallivanting to the upstate, having a big time, calling it a caucus retreat, uh, Rick and Boss here hard at work on behalf of the the public. I thought I heard the words blackjack in the background. <laughs> I, I thought I heard that. I don't know something that. And who wants another margarita? The, the, uh, okay. the, there you go. There you go. Okay. Um, I got to start with this. Representative Jordan Lowe. Um, this will be kind of weird because we normally give facial expressions and hand motions to kind of direct traffic in the studio. Um, what happens when the caucus gets together prior to a uh, a legislative session. What are you guys going over? What are priorities? What What do the public need to know about what you're doing while uh, while in Greenville with other Republican House members? So this is the first opportunity that we've had to actually gather um, as a group since I guess oh what Philip the end right. of, end of May. Um, you know we're a, a, a legislative session here in South Carolina that lasts from the I think the second we start the second Tuesday in January. We operate uh, usually through sometime in May. Um, so this is the we, we haven't been together. We've uh, to kind of go over some of the things that we we had some success with, you know, to figure out what's the jumping off point uh, come next January. So this is an opportunity for us to sit down and sort of evaluate, especially where we are. We're sort of at a halftime right now. We, you know, we've had the first year of the two year session and. Come January, we, we have to be prepared to roll out the next year's agenda to start up with the things we didn't finish and to take on some of the issues that we put off. And, and Philip, it is important. I mean, the most important relationship elected officials have is with their voters. But it is important to cultivate and, and deepen some of the relationship you have with fellow members. I mean, do, do you believe that's important, that, that, you know, for your caucus to know where you're coming from, and you to better understand, not in the state house on the floor debating a bill, but rather, you know, in, in the confines of a six-star hotel in the upstate um, over a 
$2,000 bottle, I'm sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm joking <laughs> around there. But, but in, in all seriousness, Philip, it's important for you guys to let your guard down and kind of understand where the other members are coming from. Well, relationships are important. And, and you know, a little evening time, social hours or, or dinners with people, it, it helps. We, we played top golf yesterday. I guess we couldn't afford the whole round, right? So we played uh, two hours of top golf. That was fun. And you just, you know, you, you let your hair down a little bit and, and you're one out of 24 up here, you know, in the house alone. So to get anything done, you, you need what about 70 votes, you know, to go with you. Uh, so those relationships are very important and, and that's what we're doing. We're, we're also trying, you know, to really put an agenda together. We had a pretty aggressive agenda last year and this morning we'll, we'll be voting on what things are very important to finish up in this next cycle. Uh, and that's probably the most important thing we do up here is set that agenda. We won't be talking budget. It's too early for that. Uh, that'll be December. But, but Philip, let's stay there for a second. You mentioned the budget. I got to believe that one of the concerns, I'm not a caucus member, I'm not a house member, but I got to believe that one of the concerns is going to be, you know, the revenue there to spend to do whatever the caucus decides it must do. Um, We've talked about the economy. We've talked about the federal government infusing all this capital into governments. In other words, you were able to say yes to a lot of people that maybe you would have had to say no to if not for some of the interventions. Is this the first year that we get back to normal? In other words, the budget is normal. The revenue is normal. Saying yes and no becomes more normal and anticipated. Well, the the last two budgets were well beyond normal and that's all the money that was infused by the federal government giving us money they didn't have uh, so you know, we've got some realization that it's not going to be like that but i mean there's still some money circulating around there's some government money that hadn't even been spent yet for arpa funds and all the 1.5 billion dollars that's gone from the smallest of towns to the to the biggest of cities in in this state and that money is for infrastructure. Florence got some. We, we got some in several of the small towns that will help them with some infrastructure repair. But all that money hadn't been spent. That's probably in the engineering phase now. So uh, I don't know where it'll be. We've been told to be cautious with any kind of promises we make about about funding this year because they're not really sure where it's going to be. Jay, what would your priorities be? I mean, if we're getting back to some degree of normalcy on our budgeting process, um, once again, uh, it's fun to say yes. It's it's more difficult to say no, but we're going to have to get back to the business saying yes to certain groups, no to others, um, yes to this amount of money, no to other amounts of money. But but what do you perceive that to look like after a couple of years, to Philip's point, of having just such an enormous amount of capital or uh, or liquidity in the um, in the state coffers? Well, you know, it's always important. We, we always preach, those of us up here believe in fiscal responsibility, that, you know, it's it's nice when things are going well. But the reality is we're starting to see signs of, of a slowing economy on a national level, and that will definitely impact South Carolina. We're blessed. We're fortunate um, that here in South Carolina we've sustained a tremendous amount of growth. So, um, And there's still, you know, I, I was in meetings yesterday, but there's still a lot of industry that wants to come to South Carolina. They believe South Carolina is a great place to live and work and to locate their their industry. And so the, the hope is that that, um, 
that growth and that that, that sentiment will fuel additional growth that will make any kind of slowdown that happens in, in places that have made very poor decisions at a national level. The, you know, the Californias, the Michigans, the um, New Yorks, the, the places that have stifled industry and, and regula- over-regulated, that hopefully that will help us navigate around some of the, the problems that they've created in Washington on, and, and um, economically speaking, that we'll get through that. As far as priorities, you know, I think that growth is good and bad in some sense, and we're going to have to be prepared to address some of the things that have that come along with that. Um, you know, energy is going to be a major issue that we tackle and discuss next year. Um, with that growth comes the need to fuel that growth. And there are two things that I think everyone's noticed. Number one, last year I think we all realized there's not enough supply of energy. You know, anytime you're talking about the potential for blackouts and things like that, we have a problem. And the second thing is the cost continues to skyrocket, and we have to address that issue. Philip, I'm going to turn you guys loose and be respectful of your time. Anything you want to add before uh, I let you guys get out of here and get back to business? Well, you know, we funded uh, four different industrial sites two years ago, and I mean, we fully funded them. They've not even got all that money spent on those, but I'm afraid some of that money uh, – won't be enough after 10, 15% inflation we've endured. So we may have to go back around and put a Band-Aid on a spot or two. That That's a priority right now because we have to grow in the PD. Florence is expected to be the hub of the PD, and so we've got to make sure that those sites are ready. And that this past year we worked on workforce, and we're going to have to make sure. I know there's a couple things in workforce we've got to continue so we, we've got our job cut out for us, you know, financially, but uh, we're going to have a pretty strong agenda, and we'll know more about that at the end of the day, what we actually vote on. So we're excited about what's going on, and it's not all playing up here. We're having some some serious discussions today. I am pretty sure we missed the beanie-weenie breakfast for, in order to be on the show this morning. Okay. That's, <laughs> That's quite the sacrifice right. there, <laughs> Representative Jordan. Hey, but, but I mean this sincerely. I mean, that does show a degree of dedication you have to the constituency, I mean, Jay texted me and said, hey, we're willing to try and call into the morning if you think we can make it work. I said, I can't make anything work. Let me get with Rev in the morning and make sure he can make it work. But I, and, I, and I do. I applaud you guys for taking the time this morning. I know you're busy. And it's not fun in games. I mean, it is cultivating relationships and, and you know, intensifying those relationships. But it's also, you know, um, the Republicans run the joint. And they've got to have some clarity of where they want to carry the state. And I, and I appreciate you two guys joining us this morning. Um, go back and do your thing, and um, and hopefully you'll be in studio next Friday. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Mike. it. See you, Mike. See you, fellas. Thank you. Mike, anything you want to add to that? Senator Rickenball's in the studio with us. Anything you want to add to that? Uh, keep your left arm straight on the backswing. I've, I've heard that. So. <laughs> that. That's quite the um, the political statement there. <laughs> yeah. but, but in all honesty, I mean, the House does its thing. The Senate does its thing. But but the one thing that I, I know I'm right about this, there's some things I think I'm right about, others I'm not so sure. Politics is still about people. And you've got to have a relationship with, I mean, you've got a belief. I got a belief. Rev's got a belief. This other person has something they fundamentally believe in. If there's no development of relationship, it's almost impossible to agree, uh, to, to, to build a consensus and, and advance an agenda. You know, and it's, it's not unlike business. And we come from the, the, the private industry business, Ken, and you know and I know that 
consumers have options and constituents have options. And that's why I think government does need at least some respect to look at what our responsibility is like business and look at it from the perspective that it isn't our money. Every tax dollar we receive in our coffers, the billions of dollars in tax dollars, it's not ours. And that's one of the challenges of government. You begin to think, well, this is our budget. How are we going to spend our budget? It's not ours. We're representatives of the people. It's the constituents' hard-earned dollars. So as every consumer could have went to AA uh, Builders and got a truck bed from you or someone else, your competitor, every one of my consumers could go somewhere else. And the same thing, constituents have options, and we have to be their best option or they'll look somewhere else. Or as a business owner, are, are you somewhat concerned as you look out on the horizon? I mean, I am. I'll, I'll level with you. I look at delinquency rates of credit cards. I look at delinquency rates of car payments. And I mean, there, there's some concerning information out there. The government injected about $6.3 trillion of liquidity. That seems to have worked its way through the system for the most part. And now we're back to people having to meet their, their personal and family obligations. And it looks to me that there are some trouble signs on the horizon. Yeah. And I think in, in particular, it's the, the home ownership aspect is, is very concerning to me. You know, coming up and, and not coming from money, Sharice and I you know, had always envisioned, you know, buying the, our first home. Um, instead of renting and instead of, you know, having that little one-bedroom studio, when you bought your first home, you, you, you cross that plateau of, I've arrived at the next level of, of, of wealth for our family. And while it was a $67,000 home, it was still our home. It was even a duplex. We rented out half of it to help make the mortgage payment, a mortgage payment of $560 a month. I'll never forget it. But the, the fact of the matter is you have the, the dynamic has now changed. When interest rates go from 3%, up to hovering seven, eight percent. What happens is that 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 starter family, that, that 25, 26 year old husband and wife who have worked hard, have saved, have enough of a down payment, instead of being able to buy that two hundred and thirty thousand dollar home, they can now only afford a hundred and forty thousand dollar home. Ken, you and I both know, Dave. You know, one hundred forty thousand dollars doesn't go very far when you're looking to buy a home right now. When you're trying to get into a neighborhood that's zoned for good schools, that's safe, that's protected, that's got good infrastructure. So, changing the home ownership dynamic to where people are renting means there's no equity buildup. Every dollar they spend is an expense with no equity as a result of that, um, and it's bad for for generational wealth trying to be created for people. And I see the same as you do. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Sumter, listening to WDXY, you are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Uh, Senator Rickenbaugh, uh, just curious. I, I had a, a discussion with Ken about election integrity and voter machine hacking. In the state of South Carolina, when we have our voting machines, I go and I, I punch a bunch of buttons. A little sheet of paper comes out. I go over and I scan that to... When I was in school, we had to use a number two pencil because that's what the machine could, you know, read. So I get my little sheet of paper, I stick it in there. Can you tell us in, with any specificity that once we scan that sheet of paper, what happens to our vote in the state of South Carolina? Right. Like, where where does it go from there? Is it is it digitally transmitted to a central hub? Does somebody actually carry all those paper receipts to somewhere for the official counting? 
Yeah, th- thank you for that question, Jim. Uh, I'll tell you, one of the things I, I promised when Sharice and I w- ran for the seat and won it is that we would never try to bluff an answer. Um, great question. I don't know the answer. I know, you know, in the Senate and the House, we, we passed a, a voter integrity bill with the premise of making it, you know, easy to vote but hard to cheat. But in terms of the mechanics of what happens when you do slice, scan that piece of paper, um, that's a, a, a letter of of granular data in terms of the, the process that I couldn't answer. Now, Julian Young, who runs the Florence County Election Commission, um, he's very good at what he does, and he works very hard to make sure that our elections are safe and are, are accurate and are protected. But in terms of um, what that what that process is, I don't know the answer, Jim. Sorry. No, nor do I, Mike, and I looked at one another. I got my hands up like, I don't know the answer to that. I've never thought about the, the, the granular, de- granular detail uh, that you're speaking of. Um, but there is a logistically, but there's something that has to happen uh, with that ballot. Mike, I've offered up, and, uh, and who am I to offer up? But I've offered up a suggestion. And I think it's a pretty good starting point. Chain of custody is a big concern of, of Americans. If Josh has a voter ID number and Josh is assigned a ballot with a serial number, to, to me, I mean, I, it doesn't solve all the problems. And I, shenanigans will be shenanigans and hucksters will be hucksters and hustlers will be, will be hustlers. And, you know, but, but I, I just believe that, that voters are so concerned about the integrity of the election that we've got to think in a way that we traditionally have not thought of. And I just throw that out there as kind of a starting point. Could we be a state that, that assigns a voter ID number to a ballot with a serial number? And it, it seems to me it, it's not perfect, but it would it would naturally be a better way to connect voter with said ballot. Yeah. Are we fairly confident that that doesn't happen? Is there a serial number on a ballot that's assigned to your voter ID? I don't Do think there is okay. because you get answer. into the privacy of the vote. You okay. know, if, if Mike Rickenbaugh has a voter ID number and that ID number correlates with a ballot number, then someone could find out what Rickenbaugh did. You know, mm. there's a paper trail there. I just think in the name of voting integrity, Voters may be willing to forsake that degree of privacy. I don't think you should be able to freedom of information unless there's some, you know, question about, you know, the integrity. I just think we've got to do, we've got to do a better job of convincing the public our elections are to be trusted. I mean, you agree with that. I agree. I don't know the answer to that. But when we have a nation that, that, that you know, the government is elected by its people and its people <clears throat> don't believe the legitimacy of the outcome uh, we got to work on that. Yeah, there's a, there's a real duality there, Ken, because I, I do agree that the vast majority of Americans would be willing to have a, a, an intense conversation on how to make elections more secure and more credible. Because I, I, no one I have talked to believes Joe Biden received 81 million votes. They just don't believe it. Now, how many did he receive? Nobody really knows, but in 81 million. Um, but on the flip side of that coin, two sides of a different coin, is many Americans, myself included, after watching the Justice Department be weaponized against the arrival of a sitting president, we are uncomfortable with the government having more control. Big government is a bad thing, and government has shown, especially under the Biden administration, that give them the ability and the motivation to weaponize an agency, they'll do it. So if they did have the ability to to serialize your ballot against your number, would they use that against you and be like, ah, these are our Trump supporters over yeah. here? Yeah. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yep. I think it's the way it, uh, it ends up being. Let's take a break. 
We'll be back in just a second. I got a call. We'll go to the phone on the other side. I also want to drag Rick and Bob out of the political world into the business world. Um, he's a guy very familiar with what Ford's trying to do uh, in transitioning from the internal combustion engine uh, to the EV. Ain't going so well. I'll just leave it there. Back, back in a few moments. See, to demonstrate my willingness to be a humble servant, I want to talk to Mike about something else, but our callers are there, and we know who pays the bills. If we don't have listeners, I don't have a job. So let's go to listener slash caller one. <laughs> that is true. Uh, our boss, right? There you <laughs> the, go. The listeners are our boss. Here's Jim in Florence. You are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hey, good morning, guys. So one thing that our state gets right better than any other state and uh, is elections. Uh, my, uh, the legislature, when, when they passed uh, that law that limited the amount of ballot harvesting down to, I think, five ballots per person, had a tremendous effect on our elections and created a Republican wave across the state that we saw the fruits of in 2022. Um, so that is one thing that uh, we do well at. Uh, not that it shouldn't be scrutinized routinely to ensure we're, we're staying where we need to be. We are where we need to be right now. The one thing our legislature is abhorrent at is our judicial system. And on Wednesday, our favorite Democrat lawyer, legislator, Todd Rutherford, was supposed to be in a uh, Richland County courtroom uh, for the sentencing of his client who pleaded guilty in 2022, but his sentencing got delayed three years because Todd Rutherford used the age-old tactic of every lawyer legislator um, with uh, what's called uh, legislative immunity, where they uh, tell the judge, oh, I can't show up for work because I'm in session. Um, can I love for you to tell a judge, hey, I can't show up to courtroom today because I got this radio show I got to do. Um, you can't do that. I can't tell a judge that, but, but lawyer legislators can. But anyway, so he didn't show up for three hours in this courtroom. Three hours he didn't show up. But when he finally showed up, the red carpet got rolled out for him. Any other lawyer, they would have lambasted, the judge would have lambasted him. The judge would have potentially hold him in contempt of court. <clears throat> but not Todd Rutherford. And so the problem that we have is uh, we got people like Todd Rutherford who conspired with Casey Manning uh, to get a murderer out of jail. I mean, it's just time after time after time. And Todd Rutherford is exposing that the General Assembly has lost all moral authority to pick judges in this state. Um, and so I just want to know, when, when are we going to hold Todd Rutherford accountable? When are we going to hold uh, these other attorneys that are using um, this tactic of legislative immunity accountable? When are we going to end legislative immunity? Um, and I'll, I'll end with this. I'm going to quote the Post and Courier because they said it best when they said, it is not possible for even the most honest and ethical judges to erase from their minds the fact that Mr. Rutherford and those five other lawyer legislators have unilateral power to end their careers. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Mike, I'll say this, and I'll give you the floor. Jim has had, over the years, a very aggressive opinion in, in contrast to the way we do things now. Todd is legitimizing Jim's opinion. It's nowhere near as aggressive-sounding today as it was previously because of some of the, um, I'll say it, some of the shenanigans that have happened recently. You say? Yeah. And, and Jim, thank you for calling. And, and briefly, 
I love people calling. And when you see me in the grocery store and the restaurants and you say, boy, I was going to call in Friday, please do pick up the phone and call. It's the best way for us to hear what's on your mind. So thank you for calling, Jim. Uh, you know, I'm a, a regular guy from a small farm town, and so I'm not the uh, an illegal genius, but I do know relationships and people. I got talked to Sharice into marrying me 27 years ago. We developed a pretty decent business there, so you know about the importance of relationships and the fact that, that people are in, are normally going to consider what can end or what can further their career and a lot of their decisions. That's how people decide how they're going to move up. And when you look at the judicial system, the fact that we are one of only two states in the United States who allow lawyer legislators to be part of the mechanism that hires judges, fires judges, decides how much they make, decides their future, what judge could sit on the bench and be trying a case or have lawyers trying a case before them knowing that in a year, six months, two years from now, that very lawyer is going to either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down whether they stay on the bench. It is one of the most embarrassing examples of a, a lack of transparency and candor with the three branches of government. Neither of the three, uh, none of the three branches, the executive branch, the legislative branch, or the judicial branch is supposed to be able to have total control over the other branch. If that's the case, there's really only two branches with a subset under one of the two branches. But in our current situation where the judiciary, the judges from the circuit court to the family court to the appellate court to the Supreme Court, those judges are selected by the General Assembly, of which many are lawyer legislators. And then you throw in the JMSE, where they are able to decide of the qualified judges these are the only three that we get to vote on. So you can take the fourth or the fifth and say, you know what? I didn't like his ruling that he gave last week. I don't have to give a reason. I just don't like his ruling. He doesn't make the cut for the final three. It isn't transparent, and the people of South Carolina deserve better. I agree uh, with Jim. Let's stay at JMSC. For those who don't know, Judicial Merit Screening Committee. I mean, that's where the judges are given the thumbs up, thumbs down, and then they go before the, the full body. I've always argued, Mike, and, and, you know, once again, I never was a member of the Senate. I presided over the Senate. I watched the Senate work uh, in its nuanced and, and methodical way. I've always felt that if there was a way to revamp the screening committee to give the governor a, a little more say-so, it waters down some of the influence. That the there's no You agree with me. There's no perfect way to pick judges. Right. I mean, they're, they're just hitting um, if you got a judge running for office and asking for contributions, you, you've got another dynamic. And I totally agree with you that in the current construct, you're asking human beings to not be human. You're a self-preservationist. I'm a self-preservationist. We all are by our very nature. But would you entertain the, the, the notion of starting at the Judicial Merit Screening Committee and allowing less legislative influence? Wherever we end up after that, but less legislative influence in that screening committee. I, I absolutely would. And for those who may not have read about the JMSE, because I hadn't before I was elected, um, the JMSE can't be dissolved just by a flip of a switch. It's in the, the state constitution. So we have to have the JMSE, but the, the construct, the formation as far as who's on it can be tailored or can be altered. And the fact that we have six 
lawyer legislators on there and the other four are not, it shows there's an imbalance. If the governor, who is not one of the folks who will vote for that judge, has the ability to put, let's say, six of the ten on, it would, okay, still keep the, the, the formation, the structure of the JMSC intact, but it would take it out of the hands of the very attorney judge or attorney legislators who will then be trying cases. And I'm not impugning a judge who sits on the bench and, you know, is human and says to himself, you know, I am up for election and I, I do like my job. I like my pay. I like the robe. I like my benefits. And if I rule unfavorably where it's a questionable ruling, gray, this person was going to remember that that's human nature. So I would, I would in. I will say Attorney General Alan Wilson, um, he put he formed in a judicial reform roundtable. And Sharice and I went. We went with several other senators um, to show our support to the fact that there should be reform to our judicial selection because there are not three branches of government that are separate. Well explained. Somebody on the phone, let's go there. Daphne and Dillon, you are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning, Senator Rickenbaugh. Good I morning, to Daphne. Tell you, thank you. You have been a great asset to our state Senate, and I would pray that one day you decide to run against uh, Jim Clyburn if you possibly could, because I know that the people of his district do not know the damage that he is doing to them when he voted for all this green stuff. They didn't realize that their electric bills were going to go sky high. They didn't realize that he wanted to get them out of their cars into electric vehicles that they can't afford. Also, they didn't realize that he voted against parental rights bill, which uh, would give the Democrats the authority to say, your kid going to school, you have no say-so over your child. They didn't realize that he voted to allow pornography in the books in school systems and to have that kid decide without the parent knowing to be mutilated and change their gender. Uh, There's so many things, the abortion thing, where he voted for abortion up till the time of delivery. And they don't realize that that is nothing but the Democrat Party funneling money through Planned Parenthood to go back into their coffers, and that the founder of Planned Parenthood, who is their hero, Margaret Sanger, wanted to eliminate the black race and the people who are handicapped. I wish that someone like you could explain it to them in plain language so that they would know what their representative is doing to them. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. First of all, Daphne, thank you for calling. And uh, it's an honor and a, it's a responsibility, but it's an, an incredible honor for, for Sharice and I to serve. Um, I appreciate the, the vote of confidence. Uh, a couple things. First of all, uh, unfortunately, I'm in Congressman Russell Fry's district, which is the 7th Congressional District. So, Can I jump in here? I promise to never give Mike bad advice. Mike is a staunch Republican. He ain't running in that district. I mean, I I, I would stop him. I would put him in the trunk of my car <laughs> yeah. and lock him up on the way 
to file for that district. Um, We need Mike in politics, no question about him, but we need to put him in races that he can win in advance. Yeah, so I'm in the 7th district. Now, Jim Clyburn's a district, Congressman Fry. He's in the 6th district. And and one thing that I would encourage uh, both me and you and everyone who's listening, Daphne, to do is is remember the, the power of prayer. And the reason I say that is we need a change of, of people's hearts. Um, the folks in the 6th Congressional District, while it's, it's very gerrymandered, it's essentially the folks that would vote for Clyburn, would vote for a Democratic agenda. What I'm praying for is that those folks would, would wake up and their hearts would be changed and their eyes would be opened to just the devastating results of the policies and the platforms that Congressman Clyburn and, frankly, much of the radical left embraces. Big government, big spending by the government. They're incredibly pro-abortion, which exterminates an entire generation of children. They are very pro-breakdown of the family from the standpoint of if you're transgender— and you want to change your gender as a child, go ahead and do it. But children are being mutilated by this. The, the radical left agenda is destroying much of the fabric of what made South Carolina and the United States great. But it isn't going to be changed by legislation if we don't change the legislators. So I'm really praying that there are folks that would wake up who call themselves conservatives, call themselves Christians, and say, we've got to be engaged and mobilized and vote for people who agree with the fact that we need to protect our families. We need to have family first. We need to allow school choice. We need to back away from the fact that the government cannot solve all of our problems. But I really do appreciate you reaching out, Daphne, because it's going to take people like you to be engaged and to play a role and to speak up to say this is what's important to being an American and a South Carolinian. We will take a break. Takes Mondays to make Fridays on Wake Up Carolina back in just a few moments. Okay, when you go to a Springsteen concert and you get to the three-hour mark and you think it's about over, it ain't. Encore. I mean, that's when he no. That's when he starts saying, "Pass me that sign down there," and it's got you know, um, brown-eyed girl, or it's got you know, blowing in the wind. Oh, that's, that's when the audience makes requests. Well, I mean, you've seen that. I mean, you've yeah. seen him saying, "Let me sing this thing in the GG," and Steve looks at him. No, you can't sing that high. He says, hey, you're right. I can't sing it that high. Let's play it in um, you know, D flat or D or D minor. I say that to say. Rick and Boy ain't going to sing Born to Run, but but he's doing an encore. He's going, <laughs> he's going to hang around with us for a, for a few well, more We've had moments. a lot of caller but, participation, yeah. had lines with people on hold. So. Well, and, and, and I want to say this. I mean, t- to me, this is us doing our job. I have a million opinions. I am unbelievably comfortable in articulating my opinions. But at times, I need to get out of the way and let you speak directly with people who have asked you for your vote recently. And that is a sacred and important relationship. And I want to make sure we do the best we can at being a conduit with allowing callers unfiltered. Um, uh, nobody has screened a single call and an elected official willing to answer the question the best way he knows I, and says I don't know the answer when you honestly don't know the answer. Let's go to the phone. Joel in Mullins. Good morning. You are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Good morning, gentlemen, Senator. Um, I'm glad the question of voting for judges came up. Uh, I have thought about that many times, and what bothers me about the populace voting for judges, it's based on my own experience of voting. Many times on many issues, something's presented to me, and I don't know enough about it to make a decent decision. 
And we're talking about judges. We're talking about guys that work almost isolated, sitting up there rendering justice and interpreting law. And I just don't know that the populace is qualified to do that. How many lawyers, how many people do we know with the experience they sit up there and adjudicate between peoples and government? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good call. Good question. Thank you for calling, Joel. And right, Ken's right. The reason I stayed is I, I ask for callers, and if we've got people on hold. I want to be here, so I've got one more segment, and then I got to go speak to three hundred middle schoolers here in Florence. But Joel, to your point, I mean, and and I would never profess to say what is the best process, so that there is only one perfect process. There's no perfect process. I don't believe having judges run in the popular elections is the right way. To have a, a judge who you wanted to adjudicate and to to have a, a great legal mind have to fundraise and campaign and go door to door, um, I think you may not get the best judges. And I think that's what people ask for, and they deserve the best judges. Uh, while there is no best process, I think the federal process where uh, the sitting president has more input, um, in, in the federal case, they they nominate, and then it's advice and consent of the Senate, perhaps a process where the governor has more ability to influence, whether that be what we talked about earlier, where the government the governor has at least a majority of the JMSC seats, or they nominate judges, and then it's advice and consent of the Senate and the House together. Any process where there's the ability to have more direct responsibility and accountability. Right now, there's 124 state representatives and 46 state senators. That's 170 legislators who get to decide who the next judge will be. And many of those 170 are lawyer legislators. So the the disbursement of the accountability makes it very hard to say whose fault is it when you've got 170 choices. But if the governor makes a decision, and that decision is to put someone or to nominate someone who ends up being a very bad decision, we can all look to, as voters say, the governor made the bad decision. So I agree with you. It's not a perfect way to do it, and I would never advocate for judges to have to be popular elected and, and, and campaign. But I do believe having the accountability to one person like the governor is more transparent and is better for the citizenry. Another call? Let's go there. Barron in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. You know, uh, my question is probably takes a bit more thought and uh, to answer in a one segment, but I'd like to get the idea in your mind, sir. You know, our Constitution that we currently operate under was written under Pitchfork Ben Tillman at the end of the 19th century. And most people remember him for being a racist ass, which he was, but what they don't remember him for is being one of the most progressive uh, and radical leftists when it comes to the administrative state that we've ever produced in South Carolina. So the Constitution was written to centralize all power in Columbia with a, and, and created the concept of the bureaucratic administration in Columbia that radiates out to the rural counties like where we're from and tells them what to do. Now, part of that was alleviated at the, in the 70s with the advent of home rule when county-by-county county senators were struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. But whole portions of our state government are still designed around having a senator that represents a county and that county having say into these central administrative units in Columbia. It also is the reason we have all these things like water boards and go down the hole, these extra electric bodies 
that don't answer the county council and don't answer the senator and are almost independent administrative agencies. I, I'm getting long. My point is, is it time? You know, the whole point we have 46 senators is because of the number of counties when the Constitution was passed. Is it time for a new Constitution? Is it time to take a step back from the progressive, fairly liberal Constitution we have written that originated, right, and has been rewritten since the 70s slowly, and have a new Constitution designed around what we consider Carolinian values? I'll take your comments off the air. Thank you. That's an interesting philosophical nugget to throw out of there. I mean, I don't think Barron offered up an answer, but provided a lot of um, back information or backdated information that, that leads to, I mean, I'm a Jeffersonian, and I think Jefferson even believed that, that the you know, to, to, to believe the laws we apply today will apply the same way 50, 60, 70 years from now is insanity. I mean, the world changes. Um, was there Google? You know, was there the internet? Was there radio and television? I don't know what the answer is, but I've always felt to believe that, that a group of men called the founders, or let's say the, the, uh, the constructors of the state's constitution would do it the same way that today as they did it then. I mean, that, that just, that doesn't make any sense. That that's just irreason or excuse me, illogical as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Baron, that's a very provocative uh, point you make. And, uh, at this point, I would say it would take a, a lot of a lot of thought, a lot of consternation, and it should be a, a very deliberate and intentional and, and difficult conversation because we're talking about a state of 5.3 million people and a constitution that, that governs us. Uh, but I do believe we should never be so arrogant or so proud of ourselves to think there isn't a time to revisit the way we're doing it. Um, and is there a better way to do it? Uh, and to Ken's point, technology is changing the landscape, artificial intelligence, the ability for foreign adversaries to hack our systems, to play a role in our government. Um, what China could do in our country and in our state, if they put their mind to it, should disturb all of us and concern all of us. So are there things we need to do to shore up our defenses, both as a nation and as a state? And to your point, does the Constitution need to be revisited? Well, I think it'd be a, a conversation to say where we are in 2023 is not where we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And should we have that conversation? Man, that's a great point. I wouldn't be qualified to answer it right now, but I appreciate the, the insight um, that you bring. Okay, thank you. We got another call. David in the PD, you are on with Senator Rickenbaugh. Hey, good morning, fellas. Uh, Dave, you had a great story today, and I think about unions. You already did the work. <laughs> But you had to undo the work uh, because I guess you call it, what, a shakedown? Uh, and somebody was going to condition you to conform uh, physically. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. But what's sad about this country is that there are probably more people that would be in favor of that guy on the bicycle that caused you to condition to conform. And I'm thinking about Mike there. I mean, all this thing with the UAW – who is the hero when you have all these stories? We've had the Teamster strike was going on with UPS. Uh, we had the railroad strike. Now we've got the UAW strike. And it's going to be Joe Biden to the rescue. And it's sad, but if you follow the money trail, and let's, get, let's go beyond private sector unions, let's go into teacher unions. 
federal government unions. And I tell you what, when I grew up, I never dreamed about working for the government or a government union. And to get what you guys were talking about, uh, hacking, uh, you see this thing that's going on in Las Vegas? It's unbelievable. You've got uh, – and, and they have a color in their union there, by the way, too. But they have literally b- broken this town down, these computer hackers. And I, I would I would ask Mike this, where is God involved in the hacker? Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Um, I, I do want to stay with the UAW one second. I want to get your take on this. I'm going to get my question in here some way, somehow. <laughs> no, there I you mean, go. you're in the you're in the Ford business. I mean, you've been a um, you know, an affiliate of Ford Motor Company for many, many years. Uh, well known to this part. Um, it seems to me that the government is forcing business to do something that the market's just not ready for. I mean, that, that's back a napkin. I mean, I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but but. What is your take on where these auto manufacturers are? Because, Mike, I'm arguing Ford, GM, and Chrysler aren't really negotiated with the UAW. They're negotiated with the UNW and the federal government. Yeah. You, you, you say a lot of insightful things there, Prince of Pamplico, but one of the things you've said <laughs> you know, time and time again is that the answer is money. Now tell me what the question is. And I'm paraphrasing there, but that's essentially what you said. Did I get it right? Fine, the, yeah, yeah, the answer is money. Now what's the question? Now what's the question? And, and the answer here is money, too. Um, CAFE, C-A-F-E, Corporate Average Fuel Economy. That's a metric that the government uses to determine how effective and efficient in their burning of energy in, in the fuel economy are automakers. And if your CAFE metrics go beyond the threshold, the government penalizes you as an automaker. They want you to, to, to start to back away from fossil fuels. They want you to go hybrid. They want you to go electric. The government has a narrative and it's a very clear narrative um, to push automakers to build products that doesn't use the internal combustion engine. So the automakers are going down this EV road and our Ford manufacturing and we're a Ford dealer, but the Ford manufacturer is, is one that we push back heavily when we go to meetings and say, the consumer gets to decide what they want to buy. If you attempt to push a consumer to buy a vehicle they don't want, they'll look for a different option. And all due respect to Ford and the government, the Johnsonville farmer, the guy in Pamplico, the the lady in Coward in Florence, they do not want to drive miles looking for a charging station on their truck or on their 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 car or their SUV. The consumer gets the chance to decide it. And what we're seeing right now is. This is a construct of the government trying to make the the manufacturers build a product consumers do not want at the same demand that it's going to take for the manufacturers to stay financially viable. They're going to lose billions. So when they go into these negotiations, and I think it's a shakedown by the UAW, but when you go into these negotiations, the manufacturers are also looking at the fact they're going to continue to hemorrhage, hemorrhage cash because they're building a product that consumers aren't asking for. It is it is a, a quick race to the bottom when you try to tell a consumer, buy this vehicle, and then the consumer says, I don't want it. So then the manufacturer's only recourse is to say, how much money am I going to have to discount it for you to take it? So how much will I lose? It's a bad model, bad model all around. Is it, I'm, I'm going to be provocative for a second, because the definition of communism is when the government state control of the the means of production. I mean, that, that, that's the theoretical definition. You know, um, communists believe 
that the government in control of the means of production is a better model than what we capitalists believe. But how do we argue this sitting a step toward communism? The government isn't building the car, but they're requiring you to build a certain car under certain conditions, whether the consumer wants it or not. That's right. It's a heavy-handed approach. And the only way to, to come back from this this chasm is for consumers to wake up and say, you know, I'm going to set aside the fact that I may not agree with the Republican Party right now, a moderate, even a Democrat, to look at this and realize that as a free American, if you want to remain free and drive the vehicle you want to drive, live where you want to live, be able to afford a home, the radical left, the radical Democrat agenda is going to have the government play a bigger role in your life where you can choose to vote for somebody you may not love in every respect. But they believe that America should come first, that Americans should come first as American people, and that we should have a choice. We should have a say. If we don't want an electric vehicle or a hybrid, there should be an option to say, I want a internal, an internal combustion engine. You can't make me drive an electric. Well, explain. Thank you for staying. Yeah, it's my pleasure. He Thank did, you for callers. He didn't sing Born to Run or Thunder Road, but he played quite the encore. Right. Mike Rick and Bob. We'll take a break. <laughs> Off to speak to some young kids, and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll do a great job of uh, encouraging them to better understand the government they will eventually have to live under. <laughs> God help us yeah, all. Yeah, no question about it. Tell those young kids, buy that internal combustion engine. Don't, don't, don't aspire to drive an electric car. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. So, I mean, just to prove this, and I mean, Rev already knows this, and Josh is learning, I'm never the priority. I mean, I'm always secondary. It's always about everybody else, and then eventually we get to me and my interest. Oh, yeah. Um, I made a comment last week that I didn't feel I was doing Clemson justice because on Fridays toward the end of the show, we dedicate some time to Clemson and Gamecock football, uh, and I just I don't know enough about Clemson's team. I'm not sure I know enough about the Gamecock team um, now. I just don't keep up with it like I like I once did. But uh, but we invited Jason Priester, who's doing some sports. Uh, so he's a radio star now. He's doing yeah. some radio broadcasting uh, on Friday nights with some of the football um, Our game of the week in Florence. So, so, so Jason and I, in a couple of minutes, will have. Um, he can have an in-depth conversation about Clemson. I'm not sure I could have an in-depth conversation about uh, about Gamecocks, except. The quarterback is pretty good, and I don't know about everybody else. <laughs> that's kind of where that's kind of where Gamecocks are right now. But let's go to the phone. Yep. Someone's there, and then Jason and I'll chew the fat on some college football. Jeff in Florence. Hey, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, hey, about the uh, car um, debate with the electric cars, um, you know why the UAE is really striking, right? No, but I'm sure you do. <laughs> well, one of the reasons is, it takes a lot less labor, and there's a lot less requirements to build an electric car than an internal combustion engine car. You, you know, you're aware of that? Yeah, about 40% less. Right. And you know what doesn't need a lot of servicing is those electric cars. You have to replace the battery, but electric motors are much more reliable than internal combustion engines, wouldn't you say? Ah, you're saying that. I don't say that at all. Right, but if you, if you look into it, you know, you'll... Well, I mean, I've looked into it. I've, I've seen nobody say for sure that the electric car is more dependable than the internal combustion engine. What, what you're basically what arguing is, is let's not let the dumb consumer make his choice. Let's us smart liberals in government decide for them because we know what they need to drive. They don't know. You know how those hayseed Trump voters, they'll drive them damn internal combustion engines till, they, till the wheels fall off. <laughs> 
We in government, and we liberals who support big government, we know what people need to be driving, so let's force them to drive what we want them to drive. I mean, this is, yeah, that's I, what I, you're I, arguing, that's Jeff. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm just pointing out, I, I'm, I'm saying, the studies show, uh, that the electric cars require a lot less maintenance. How many electric cars are out there? Oh, there's a ton. I mean, don't forget. I don't know anybody. Yes, I do. I'm lying. I know one person that has an electric car. Mike Rickenbaugh said he has not sold an electric vehicle yet. Have you seen the price? I mean, it's not Jeff Ford Company. It's not Ken Ford. It's Mike Rickenbaugh Ford. The guy that sat across from me said people don't want the car as bad as you'd like them to have it. And as much as the government is trying to force them that way, the consumer right now has said, I don't want that. So Tesla doesn't sell cars? Nowhere near as many as Ford and GM do. What's the most valuable car company in the world? I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're arguing it's the point. Tesla. All I'm telling you is it's today Tesla. in America, there is the EV inventory is 103 days of supply. The internal combustion engine is 51 days. There's a 116-day supply of the Ford Lightning F-150 that's going to revolutionize the auto industry, it may. It may eventually do that. I am of the opinion, let's let the market decide when the best time to buy and drive an electric vehicle. That's my only point. I hope one day we get to a place Jeff, where we're not burning fossil fuels. Do you drive an EV? I do not. I, I, I am. Uh, well, you're a I'm hypocritical why, why, son why, of a gun. Why not? No, no I'm not. Why not? Sure you why, are. Why don't you? Why, why don't I you? Buy why wouldn't you make the smart, you're a smart guy, why wouldn't you make the smart decision? Why wouldn't a prudent guy like you make the prudent decision? Why would you be so irresponsible as to drive an internal combustion engine car today? Again, nobody's telling you to buy whatever. That's the point. Have you seen the advanced dealer? You seen the Well, the guy that runs a Ford dealership okay. said they are. Can I, can I? Have sure, you but I mean, you, you're saying nobody is saying okay. that. But Jeff, everybody, okay. the guy that runs a Ford dealership who makes his livelihood selling cars and trucks says they're trying to force people to drive a Ford. I mean, an electric vehicle. Can I? Can I? Can I just say something? Sure, I you can. A car from Mike Rick, I bought a, a, an internal combustion car from Mike Rickenbaugh. Great dealership to work with. Paid MSRP. They could have charged a lot more for the vehicle I I, I bought from them. If I walk over and look at the lightning that is on his lot, guess what? You think they're charging MSRP for it? I don't have any idea what they're charging for it. They're not. Do you know what ADM is? I do not. It's a markup that they're putting on high-demand vehicles. That lightning would have... Jeff, you cannot honestly argue that EVs are high-demand vehicles. That's an absurd argument. That's being fundamentally dishonest. That's not absurdity. That's being dishonest. When you get off, when we get off the phone, you've got Mike's cell phone number. Call him and ask him how much over MSRP that he's got his lightning. But you just—that's not you said uh, that no, the no, electric no, vehicle exactly is a high-demand automobile. They can't sell them. The dealerships can't sell the vehicles. Hear what I asked you to ask him. Him if he has markup over MSRP on that vehicle. I, I, I don't know where you're headed, but but you're. I mean, okay. continue. I'm sorry, I, you, you've lost me. Right. Well, uh, there's MSRP, what you could sell a vehicle for and get a loan. Well, I understand for. that manufacturer suggested and retail then price. Sometimes, when a vehicle is in demand, 
they will charge more over MSRP. Well, I mean, so I think Rick Hendrick may have gotten in trouble with Honda Accords. Yeah. If nobody wanted it, why would they have $25,000 markup? I, I don't know if they want it or not. I just said the guy that runs the dealership said nobody wants it. Ken, if you, if you walk in and there's a Ford F-150 sitting there and it's selling for MSRP, and then you you turn around and look at the Ford Lightning, and there's an MSRP sticker there, and then underneath it you see a markup of $25,000, which one are you going to buy? But why is it if it's in high demand? No, 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 let's, no, 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 no. If you're going to make a conscientious decision based on price, then it can't be in high demand. What if it's not high demand? Why would you? Jeff, you're talking yourself in circles. You're trying to be loyal to an agenda, and I get that. I mean, you have a belief, and I respect that. I I really and truly respect. I have a gas vehicle. I'm not driving an electric car. I have no agenda. I'm pointing out to you free market rules, right? We just we, we fundamentally on. you know it's true. No, I, I know it's not true. I know absolutely it's not true. I know true. how much the, the the CEO of Ford said they lose on every one of those vehicles. He, he said they have contracts. They got 140 contract with software and the technology providers that they don't they have to farm out all that technology because they don't have the the ability to have the technology in house, and that's where Tesla beats everybody at their game. That's, Tesla has they're, they're, Tesla they're has control of all that information. But but if, if Ford believed that that was the way to go, why wouldn't they have control of that software technology? Why why would they be Johnny come lately? I mean, if Ford believes this is the best way to go, why are they playing catch up or trying to play catch up and the government subsidizing them trying to play catch okay. up? So so this gets to the point of, you know, what's Apple's problem with an iPad? It lasts too long. Electric vehicles tend to be a lot more reliable. The battery, you can buy any OEM battery and replace it, but the vehicle itself actually lasts. What does that battery cost, Jeff? What does that replacement of that battery oh, it's, cost? It's, it's, up, it, it, it's very high. Like $26,000? Yeah. Uh, no, not $26,000. Uh, but you can sell that battery. And and it can be reused. Okay. So it's not like it's. Uh, I, 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 I would love to do you, this. We, we got. I want. I want to get back ask, to Jason here. Mike, well, I mean, I, 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 I did want to ask you: Did you see Megyn Kelly's interview with Trump? I watched a little bit of it, not much. I'll try to watch some of that this weekend. Yeah, I'll tell you this: Megyn Kelly's lost some weight. Megyn Kelly's doing some CrossFit, I think. Yes, she did. Okay. But that's an interesting interview. <laughs> hey, call Monday, and and but I, I got to talk football now. I mean, we got Mike. Uh, <laughs> give Mike a try. Give Mike a try. <laughs> yeah, give Mike a try. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I just anyway. Um, we'll 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 get back there Monday. Um, Jason's going to why? Why did I come? I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to get in the middle of electric vehicles. Uh, and, and what? It's all about game cocks and tigers. You I know. am getting a valuable lesson in electric vehicles <laughs> right now. The information I well, did I mean, not the, have. Here's the valuable lesson. You ready? <laughs> uh, I'll shoot you straight. Don't buy one now. I, I mean, have no let, let, let the one. market address the transition instead of the government mandating certain things of certain manufacturers to do. Anyway, that's a story for another day. I, I, Jeff just, he finds the three or four, and I do that. I mean, I cherry pick data. We all cherry pick data. Um, the only game that matters between the game cops and Tigers is last year. And who won that game, right? Forget the previous oh, seven. Oh, no, see. I'm saying forget forget the yeah. previous right. seven. I mean, right. you can always find, <laughs> you know what? Did they play last night? <laughs> <laughs> you can always find a little snapshot here, here and there. 
I want to do this if you don't mind. I want to take three or four minutes, and and I want you to. I got a theory, and I want to get your take on this. I'm not a Tiger fan, but if I were a Tiger fan, the biggest concern I'd have is not whether my quarterback's going to work out, not 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 if we've um not 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 if if Dabo is you know buying into the NIL and transfer a little bit more, but it's the conference realignment. I mean, if I'm a Clemson fan, I, yeah, I got a problem that the quarterback's not as good as we thought it was going to be. Maybe, maybe our defense. Anyway, uh, th- th- those are nuanced problems that every football team in America will have to deal with and fan bases complain about. But if I'm Clemson and I'm one of the relevant brands in college football and I ain't in the SEC or Big Ten, I'm nervous. Am I wrong, Jason? No, you're absolutely right. Because if you're not in the SEC or the Big Ten, five, Five years, let's say five years from now, you are starting to get left behind and not just a little bit, big time. So I mean, what do the Tigers do? I mean, you, you're you're kind of in that bubble. What 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 are the rumors you hear? What, where, where are the angles to play? Where are the, the, the roads to pursue? If you look at everything Clemson's done in the past, I don't know, two, three years, whatever, it screams Big Ten. I mean, it screams Lacrosse. Big Ten. Look at the sports they've added. Lacrosse, women's gymnastics. One of their most storied programs is men's soccer. SEC doesn't do men's soccer. Um, you look at some of the academic stuff they've been doing that they just opened up a, a veterinary school or something. I forget what it was. But, you know, it just screams Big Ten. Everything you hear with Clemson and realignment up there, it kind of just leans Big Ten. And I am of the opinion you do whatever you can to make yourself as attractive as possible to both go with the first that sends the invite out but you know when it comes right down to it it really does look like it's leaning big 10 now the question becomes does the sec allow the big 10 to come down here and start poaching off these big the biggest brands in in the southeast i'm not sure they will but i mean we'll see but but you would agree that clemson can't stand pat i mean that they they've got to they've got to pursue one of these leagues or the other now i'm of the opinion you're talking about five years from now. I believe 10 years from now that there'll be a realignment of the SEC and Big Ten. It'll almost be like the NFC and the AFC. I mean, there'll be these these two super conferences, call whatever you want to call, below the Mason-Dixon, above the whatever you want to call them, and that will be all of the guys and teams that decide we're going to play big boy football, and our budget says we will. 100% agree. I think we are going – Heading towards a complete break, you know, whatever it is, 40, 50, 60 teams, whatever. They go off and do their own thing, and maybe you have two divisions like the NFL does, AFC, NFC, and SEC, Big Ten, whatever. But they're going to all be playing under the same umbrella, maybe spitting the same piece of the pie. And I think it's coming sooner rather than later. Yeah, probably within 10 years. Jason, it concerns me. And in the world of have and have nots, the Gamecocks and Tigers both are haves. I mean, Clemson's won far more than South Carolina has, but South Carolina belongs to this prestigious conference, and they enjoy the benefit of all the revenue generated uh, by the SEC. So they're both in the uh, in the half camp, but they ain't Texas. They ain't Texas A&M. They ain't Ohio State and Michigan. The, should it concern everybody except the six or seven schools who have a chance to fund NILs to a degree that Clemson can't nor South Carolina can? Yeah, I think it should. I mean, I, I think – this sport is rapidly changing, and it is going to continue to rapidly change. And we're we're going to start seeing players get paid salaries, which means you need to you know more revenue because you got to pay the players. I mean, it, it, 
if you are a fan of what college football used to stand for, uh, it, it's changing and it's not going back. It's going to evolve. It's going to keep changing and it's not going to look anything like it used to five, 10 years. Well, I mean, I watched Vanderbilt play Wake Forest Saturday. That's college football to me. I mean, that's kids. Very few of those kids will ever sign an NFL contract. I mean, Wake's got better players than Vanderbilt, but they both academically inclined, you know, um, 30,000 people in the stadium. Uh, they shake hands after the game. You know, they, they show a reverence and respect. And then you got South Carolina, Georgia. Next weekend, you got Clemson, Florida State. That's just a different animal. I mean, to your point, it is all about, I mean, it, it's, it's professional football on Saturday. It's like, that that Clemson Florida State game is scheduled for a noon kickoff. That was announced the other day, and Clemson fans are all up in arms. They wanted a night game and all that good stuff. That ABC noon slot is a national slot. It is routinely one of the either the top watched game on that network every weekend or the second most watched game on that network every weekend. There is a reason they put it in that noon slot, and it's not in a regional three thirty slot. I mean, and they could care less about your tailgate traditions. About your bourbon and barbecue. But they just don't. It's all about eyeballs. It's all about subscriber units. It's all about how much money can we generate in revenue on television. Have you ever tried to get into Clemson for a noon kickoff? I have not. Oh, it is. It's terrible. It is brutal. Columbia is bad enough for a noon kick. You got two or three roads Mm -hmm. all leading into the same place. Everybody's trying to get there at the same time. It's bad enough when you're playing Syracuse at noon. I, I am very much dreading going up there next okay, week. Okay, let's take a break. I want to come back and give Jason the floor to kind of talk about um and let's talk about Florida Atlantic a little bit, but but kind of look forward to to Clemson Florida State. Take a break back in a few. I got to do this. We got to hurry. Um somebody sent me a screenshot of a car at a local dealership. It's an F150 electric. It's been on the dealership's lot 367 days. They've just had two recent price decreases. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Still eighty thousand dollars, but it's been three hundred sixty-seven days at the dealership. As a high-demand truck, three hundred sixty-seven days had two price drops in the last uh, since July. So you know that contradicts a little bit about what what Jeff said. High demand, yeah, high demand. <laughs> uh, three hundred sixty-seven days on the yard and two price drops since mm. July. Um, that's what you do to high-demand vehicles. You drop the price and they stay on the yard. Yeah. Um, let, let's go to Clemson this year. I think Clemson fans were spoiled. Hell, I know they were. Ain't no think to this. They had two generational players at the most important position on the field. Now they don't. And welcome to the real world. Is that a? It's not as simple as that, Jason. But certainly, that was and is. Yeah, I think at least a portion of the fan base has been spoiled by the six years in the playoffs, the two national titles, all that good stuff. And, you know, I get it. I understand it. They they saw some really good football and two excellent quarterbacks during that time frame. And they call them generational quarterbacks for a reason because usually you get once in a generation, right? They got two kind of back-to-back, you know, Kelly Bryant sandwiched in between there for a year. But it's hard to do that every year. And Clemson's kind of finding that out right now. They've got a quarterback right now who I think is going to be really good. I, I still think he's going to be really good, but he's still young. He's, he's made like four starts, and he kind of still looks like a freshman in a lot of ways. He's still got some growing to do. I think he'll get there. I think he's just not quite where everybody expected him to be at this point. And Duke's a little better than I think people give them credit for. I think Duke's better than North Carolina. I mean, I really enjoy I've watched them play, and I think they've got pretty decent players and a good quarterback. 
I think Duke is very good. I, you know, I said all along I thought that game was going to be competitive. I also said I thought Clemson would score late in cover. <laughs> <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. Okay, Florida Atlantic Saturday, and if I don't get up with you, uh, Florida State, we got a minute, minute and a half, right, Rev? Yep. Okay, g- give me the skinny. Turnovers. Clemson's got to quit turning the ball over nine times. I mean, excuse me. Last nine games, 22 turnovers. Mm. Something just carried over from last season. Turned it over three times against Duke. You know, I mean, down there inside the five. You can't do that. Turned it over twice early last week. All of a sudden, you're down 14-7 to seven to Charleston Southern. They ran six plays for six yards, and they're up. You know, you got to protect the football. That's where it all starts. If Clemson cannot get these turnover issues under control, Florida State's going to go into Death Valley and blow their doors off. Period. Is Florida State back? If they're not back, they're well on their yeah. way to being 42 back. 42 players on NIL contracts. Yeah, they they Mike Norvell's done a heck of a job there. He knew that he probably wouldn't get the time to build that thing, you know, recruiting the high school level the, the way, say, Dabo Sweeney does. I think Norvell actually prefers to go that route, but coaches don't get that kind of time anymore. It, when you take over a job and you need to retool your roster, you probably better use the transfer portal. And they have done an excellent job. And it's led to success on the recruiting trail. They are they have a top five class right now. Good deal. Thank you for coming by. Jason Priest with allclemson.com. Am I right? Allclemsontigers.com. Allclemsontigers.com. And I can attest to that generational quarterback play as a Gamecock fan. Wasn't a lot of mm-hmm. fun for us chickens. Right about that. Um, can we do some trivia now? Okay. You ready? There's the music. There's the music. It's time for our Takes Mondays to Make Fridays trivia. Thanks to our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Fast Twitch Celsius gets me by um, the nonsense that we spew morning <laughs> after morning after morning. First correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, T-shirt, talking about the new version of college football. There was a first-ever game in college football. Who were one of the two teams? You don't have to name them both. It was obviously between two teams, but give me one of the two teams that played the first-ever college football football game 843-661-0937 first correct answer six pack of pepsi product couple of takes mondays to make friday's t-shirts courtesy of our good friends at pepsi of florence hi you're on the air do you know the answer i'm gonna say princeton you're right rutgers and princeton played the first ever college football game who is this where are you calling from this is color from darlington all right hang tight we'll get you back to josh you'll get all your relevant information um i think clemson has an easy time this weekend their their battle like like jason said is next weekend against florida state gamecocks going to athens it'll be a lot of fun at about 3 30 um <laughs> little, little i mean south carolina historically has played georgia pretty tough except the last three years uh 40 48 and 45 i think is the points that georgia put on the board and i think jason would agree football had a two-headed monster alabama and clemson it might just be a one-headed monster right now <laughs> called Georgia. I mean, Kirby's done a phenomenal job at recruiting players. You know, is he a great on-field coach? I don't know. But when you got really, really good players at every position, you don't have to be that great <laughs> of a uh, of an on-field. What did Barry Switzer say? It ain't X's and O's. It's Jimmy and Joe's. Georgia's got a bunch of Jimmy and Joe's. But you go to Athens if you're a chicken fan and just let it rip. Just let it rip. We'll talk Monday. Enjoy your weekend.